Well, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater. As always, I am your amiable co-host, Tim, and joining me is... Catherine. And we are here to talk about another... I'm going to go ahead and call it a failure of 2020, and that is Christopher Nolan's Tenet. The wide release in the middle of a pandemic that didn't do very well, um, and is possibly... The moment when movie-going audiences around the world said in a unified voice, Christopher Nolan, we're sick of your shit. Um, in, in no uncertain terms. Um, no one has called this film a failure. Warner Brothers has expressed that it was pleased with the final result, and it very well may have been. By all accounts, it made about $370 million worldwide, uh, which is about half of what most Christopher Nolan films make at the box office. Um, and seemingly with this incredibly large budgeted action film, I can't imagine that everybody was purely happy with it. And seemingly Nolan himself was not pleased with the way that the situation broke down. Um, but apart from money, Tenet is a problematic film. Would you agree? Yes. Catherine? Yes, I would. Yeah. Um, Tenet, uh, if we look at the career of Christopher Nolan as a person at the beginning with a sort of mild mental disorder, and I, I don't mean this as a der in any derogatory fashion towards anyone who has a mental disorder. Uh, I myself struggle with many things that could be classified as mental disorders. But Christopher Nolan has had a certain, well, let's call them tics, that have existed in all of his films. And it seems that in the last few years, those tics have become let's say, problematic in terms of how he makes movies. And Tenet may be the final and most ultimate expression of that. Uh, will he be able to reset and come back from it? Will he lean harder into these things? I don't know. I have um, obsessive compulsive disorder, so I'm very familiar with, with obsessions and, and tics and things that you get fixated yeah. on within your art. So I like that about Christopher Nolan. It's kind of what draws me to his projects. But I don't think Tenet is the best employment of his his gifts and, and really the best evidence of his obsessions as a director, as a filmmaker. I don't think it yes. is. Yes. Yes. And again, I, I don't want to make it seem like I am uh, equating a, a filmmaker's art with something as complex and, and multifaceted as something like a mental disorder, but I can't help but over the course of Christopher Nolan's career, see this deepening and really obsession is the right word, mostly with upending the way that people experience and process the language of film. So we're going to get into all that here in, in a moment, but um, I, I want to talk a bit first about Christopher Nolan himself and, and sort of our relationship to him as filmmakers, because uh, I have zero problem as most people do putting Christopher Nolan in the rarefied air of one of the finest and most important directors of his generation. Um, he, he will go down with Spielberg and Lucas and Coppola and Fincher. Like Nolan is, is a truly exceptional film director. The scale of his projects, the sort of cultural impact of most of his projects, uh, you know, 
I don't think we would have this run of superhero films that we've had so much fun lampooning on this show if it was not for Christopher Nolan with Batman Begins. He changed that game and brought that into the public consciousness in a way that I think no one had ever really expected. And and then went on to use his cachet from those successes to build out some of the most unique, visually fascinating blockbusters in, in the history of the last you know, in, in the last 20 years of cinema, possibly in all of cinema history, with things like The Prestige and Inception. Um, you know, Interstellar, I, I know we'll talk about that one a little bit. That's another problematic one. But the dude does good stuff. And Tenet, while having a lot of those trappings, doesn't necessarily get to, the, to those highs. So let's, let's just talk a little bit about Christopher Nolan and, and sort of how we came to him uh for me it really started with memento me too. Um, there was a there was a tremendous buzz around that film when it came out in the early 2000s and uh no one was playing it it was in, it was a limited release for uh the the bulk of its release really i the the theaters that were close to me geographically didn't have it so i ended up driving about an hour and a half away to see it uh in a, a theater and and was blown away by it. Uh, Memento rapidly, you know, shot to the top of my like, oh, MG, this movie is incredible. Because in telling the story of a man with a legitimate mental disorder, <laughs> um, he he broke certain aspects of cinema. He changed the the nature of, of linear storytelling in film. Well, not changed. I mean, he was certainly following from people who had, had experimented with those things before. He got a different Nolan's audience not... to watch it. Exactly. And that's really his thing. Like, David Lynch has been doing these things for decades, but nobody goes out in droves to see a David Lynch film. They did when Twin right. Peaks was on the air, and then someone ruined it. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Sorry. And, uh, and then, you know, David Lynch sort of immediately retreated from that and went back to doing his, his weird art films, as he should. But Chris Nolan is one of those rare filmmakers that is able to throw a little bit of sauce into his movies, a little bit of weirdness, a little bit of jank, a little bit of strange, and still get people to turn out typically in droves and, uh, and, and pony up at the box office, which is something that many other experimental quote-unquote filmmakers uh, struggle to do. So Memento was an incredible film experience. Um, I sought it out. I have the special edition DVD that's basically a big psychological test to get the movie to play. Um, it's it's one of my favorite things, and I, I adore it. And then uh, the Batman run began, right? So much like many other filmmakers we've talked about, he was gobbled up by a studio. They threw him a Batman movie, because why not? Why wouldn't the Memento guy make a great Batman movie, right? I mean, he did. Uh, you know, and he did. For what it's worth. Right, so... You know, he he brought Batman, you know, back from the brink, right? After Batman and Robin, nobody really knew if we would ever have another good Batman again, if that was the thing that could happen. And uh, and he did, right? And so uh, then, of course, he made The Dark Knight, which, you know, most people, a lot of people consider the best superhero movie ever. I'm I'm not mm. quite that hot on it. I, um, think, uh, I think Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. That's the greatest yes. superhero movie that's ever. It's 
it's certainly the most comic booky, right? It, it's not afraid to embrace its comic book roots, whereas Batman succeeds by pretending that comic books don't exist and that this is all real, right? And Batman has a tank. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it works. Um, and, and then we really get to to you know. Honestly, and we can all sort of hand off to you so you can talk a little bit about this period in his career as well. We get to the prestige, which is, I think, where what I would consider the modern Christopher Nolan began to take shape. Um, the prestige was his last uh, adaptation. Uh, everything from this point on, even Memento was an adaptation. It was an adaptation of his brother's short story, but it was not his story. Um, and the prestige, of course, was the adaptation of the, the very popular book. But everything since then has been a Chris Nolan joint with very little assistance from the outside. Jonathan Nolan a little bit here and there. He's, he's certainly been around. But um, much like Tenet, Chris Nolan was the oftentimes the sole writing credit. So what do you think about early Nolan? What stands out to you as the, well, the, first, the really good stuff? The first thing that I saw was also Memento. And I loved it. I actually went so far as to track down the film that he had done before the following, um, mm -hmm. which I have. I still own that. Um, I think I had to import it from somewhere. It was, it was really expensive. <laughs> it's a little bit easier now to get a hold of. Um, it was it was challenging to get. The early two thousands. That was that was hard to find. But uh, I was a huge fan, and I he lost me a bit with Batman Begins, because I thought, well, it's not really making the best use of his talents. Because um, even though it was really good, I was like, it's kind of missing what made Memento so magical. Um, which would be his experimentation with, you know, narrative structure and, and all the fun things that you can do with a plot. Um, I felt like Batman Begins was a little more boring, but yet it was way better than any other Batman anything because it was different. Um, it still, it had enough of him in it that, you know, it was good. The Prestige, I thought, was great. I loved that movie. I loved the idea of it. I, I love the time period. I, I mean, it was, you couldn't have, you couldn't have made a movie that I would have loved more than that. And then you put Hugh Jackman in, it's like, oh God, now it's got Wolverine. <laughs> um, right. so I loved that. But... I would really like to see him collaborate more with his brother because I think his brother has really good writing sensibilities. And I kind of wonder if I started getting put out with Nolan's movies when he started doing them more on his own. Because it was after The Prestige that I was like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Um, like Inception, I really like Inception, but it's it didn't have the same kind of wow quality that that Memento did for me, and I don't know why. Um, it could also be Leonardo DiCaprio. I'm not a huge fan of him. I'm not sure. Yeah, I could realize that. Um, but yeah, his early stuff is probably the most accessible and my favorite of his work. Um, because, I mean, Inception, that was the next thing he did, right? Right after The Prestige. Yeah. Um, no, he went back to Batman. Oh, yeah. There was a Batman. Yeah, yeah. I guess Batman doesn't yeah. count. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that started his alternating pattern. Basically, he convinced Warner Brothers 
if I make you another successful Batman movie, you give me an unlimited budget to go do whatever, whatever the hell I want. Yeah. And then, so he made uh, Dark Knight, and then he made Inception, and then Dark Knight Rises, and then what, Dunkirk? Uh, uh, something. Uh, <laughs> um, something. So Inception was was still like a really great movie, but I, I kind of saw him going in a direction I didn't love, and then Interstellar happened. Oh, it was Dark Knight Rises, then Interstellar. Sorry. That was his last bit of the, the Warner Brothers juice. From his uh, Batman stuff, yeah. So the Interstellar was that, that film, and, and I know, I I I don't want to say so. You know, after the Prestige happens, and uh, the Prestige, honestly, his three lowest rated films on Rotten Tomatoes are the Prestige, Interstellar, and Tenet. Um, those are his lowest. Two of those, I agree. Prestige, <laughs> the Prestige is around 76 percent, which uh, again, that's that's a quite a while ago before Rotten Tomatoes was really a thing. So it, those can be hard to gauge. Well, I also feel like that people, was a movie that people didn't know what to make of. Right. Um, because this is also the prestige is where, you know, I guess we can't really forget insomnia in there as well. I love that movie. Um, oh my God. I love that movie. <laughs> that was his first studio picture before Batman begins. Like, so he had made memento. Then he made Insomnia, which again was another adaptation. It was an adaptation of a, what, a Swedish film, Norwegian film. Uh, I don't remember. Um, I taught this movie. Isn't that terrible? I should know this. It was in, yeah, it was a Norwegian film, uh, which I've seen the Norwegian original as well. I, I think Nolan Nolan's version is the rare remake that does the original justice while also kind of being its own thing, uh, which is cool. So I made Insomnia, which was a very... <clears throat> You know, it was a very practiced film. It was very careful. Uh, it was very well put together. And then, you know, Batman Begins. So, you know, Prestige is where Nolan kinds of turns on the juice. And it's where he becomes obsessed with a couple of very specific things. Um, narrative confusion, right? Mixing timelines and using, you know, the Kuleshov effect to convince us that these things are happening simultaneously when they really aren't. Right, so prestige. We really start getting a lot of that. He did a bit of that in Insomnia to play with time. You know, since the main character was experiencing, you know, the, the effects of insomnia and blending of experiences and stuff. But really, the prestige is where that starts to solidify, and the prestige is where he becomes, he begins to dally and have dalliances with ambiguity, right? Like questions that I'm going to pose. And not really answer. I might offer you a partial answer, but I'm not going to really sort of lay this out for you. Um, obviously, in the Prestige, spoiler for a you know 15 year old period piece, um, there's a lot of, of potential magic slash science in the Prestige, right? A, a Tesla machine that can clone a human being. It's a movie right? about angry of... magicians. <laughs> angry magicians using science to one up each other. Spiteful magic. Um, <clears throat> Um, but it's also where his like preferred cast came to play. Uh, you know, obviously his first collaboration or, or one of his first collaborations with um, uh, Christian Bale. He had worked from Batman Begins. They did the Prestige together. Um, he also uh, his relationship with Michael Caine gets solidified. You know, all of these people sort of start falling into Christopher Nolan's orbit, and we continue to see them today. But you know. Inception for me is a high watermark in his career. Uh, I know it's a problematic movie. It's it's where the the accusation of sort of 
faux intellectualism gets thrown in with Christopher Nolan, you know, writing films that, quite frankly, he believes are smarter than they actually are. Um, Inception is a very good one of those because the the exposition in Inception is very carefully tuned. The progression of the film is very carefully tuned. And it's a film that allows you to feel smart for figuring it out, hmm. um, even though it's not really that complicated, right? Inception is not a complex movie. It's, no. it's actually really straightforward once you once you sort of understand the rules. But everyone who saw it, it is attention. now a big critic of film. <laughs> right. Um, it did I, that it, for everybody. <laughs> a lot of people, there is a reading of Inception that it is about the actual process of filmmaking. That you can break it all down. There's a really, there's a couple of really good YouTube videos about this. If people are interested, I'm, I don't care to go over it here because I, I don't really think that's what's happening. But that's not really what um, we do on this show. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think any creative work, if you really want to break them down to their component elements, could probably be metaphors for the creative process, right? Like it's, that's that's a fairly easy thing to sort of see happening because the creative process is one of struggle. If you give me and enough time and some drinks, I can make anything into a metaphor about anything. <laughs> yeah. And, and so inception for me, I think is a, it's a really tightly structured film. It's anchored by some really strong performances. The, the undersung hero of inception, the, the person that really makes it work is actually Killian Murphy. Um, because without him, playing the the person that they're attempting to play and and the emotional catharsis of his you know reawakening of a, a relationship that never existed between him and his father that movie just completely falls apart and so it, it kind of hangs on him and he he sells it when a lot of the other characters are struggling um and you know it's just fun watching tom hardy be a badass joseph gordon levitt be a badass. like there's just cool things about that i still love the hallway sequence in inception i, I think that truly is a remarkably shot and and effective action sequence and it's great because he did it in the simplest and most straightforward way possible which is just keep the camera stable and rotate everything around it which is an old stanley kubrick trick and and i love nolan for that he is a student of the practical nature of making film and he is desperate to try and hang on to those techniques for as much as he can and and i think that that's a really good thing um you know he's the guy that had them build a you know six foot miniature version of a plane so he could dunk it in the water and, and instead of having a CG plane crash into the water, you know, it's that kind of stuff. And I do respect that about Chris Nolan, that he hasn't he doesn't shy away from technology. He's more than capable of using technology, but he always tries to find a more traditional classical way to do something. And most of the time that's to his betterment. So sort of later Nolan is where things get more problematic. Uh, you mentioned Interstellar. For a lot of people, the shine kind of fell off of Nolan with The Dark Knight Rises. Well, it was The a Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> I, I've, I've come around on it a bit. Um, there are things that it's doing that I think are, are really good. And it's sort of the same thing. I don't want to get into necessarily this discussion as well as a sidebar, but one of the reasons why I like The Last Jedi out of the sequel trilogy is that The Last Jedi is the only one of them that is just trying to be a movie instead of a Star Wars movie. 
is it is a it is a movie that happens to be about Star Wars, whereas you know the J.J. Abrams ones are Star Wars movies, and that's it, right? They're made to be like a thing rather than to be their own thing. And I know that that's sort of an awkward way to say it, but the Last Jedi for me, even if you take it out of the sequel trilogy, it still works as a sort of like a standalone story, like a, a you know characters have arcs, they do things. You don't have to like those arcs. You can think those arcs are bad. You're not necessarily wrong. But it's it's the only one out of those three that isn't just blatantly trying to ape other ones <laughs> that already exist. You know, and, and I appreciate it for that, at the very least. And in many ways, The Dark Knight Rises is that. It's it's a fine movie. It's just not a very good Batman movie. Right? It's it functions as a film, mostly, but it's it's kind of just a bad Batman movie. One because Batman's not in it like at all, yeah. <laughs> like he's in it for literally ten minutes at the end, and and that's it. And that was a, a weird choice, and the the sort of larger you know sort of political scope of it of trying to you know Batman taking on the mantle of the villain to you know, try to protect the, the the town itself by being the bad guy. It's an interesting concept, certainly one that Batman's a good character to explore, but just kind of mishandled um, kind of across the board. And that's kind of where things kind of start to take a downward turn with Chris Nolan's career. Maybe it's too much control. Maybe it's not being able to be told no. I mean, we've certainly seen our share of directors that once they reach a certain status, they produce less impressive work because no one can tell them that they're wrong or that they need to change. And that's always problematic. Always problematic. But so The Dark Knight Rises happens in 2012. It caps off his Dark Knight trilogy, and it's fine. Um... And then two years later, he releases Interstellar. Yeah. So, tell us your thoughts on Interstellar. I did not like that movie. Um, it was long, firstly, very long. Again, I'll go ahead and say, since The Prestige, we have not gotten a Christopher Nolan movie that is less Ugh. than like two hours and twenty minutes. And it just doesn't happen. Anymore. And you know, Tenet is long. But it didn't feel as long as Interstellar. Interstellar felt like it went on for hundreds of years. And I just, (laughs) the plight of Space Dad was just not that interesting to me. And I didn't, there were things that I, I didn't understand, like John Lithgow's character, why he hated Space Dad so much. Why? Well, he took away Space Daughter. But Space Dad was a really good dad. I'm confused. (laughs) It's just, I was so confused during most of the film. Um, Well, I love Matthew McConaughey. Love his performance. Yes. yes. That dude is so weird. I love him. (laughs) Christopher Nolan has the, the unfortunate habit of defining his male characters through the loss of a, of a, a past love. Yeah. Um, it's it's pretty much his go-to move. Um, we see him do it with uh, again. It kind of started with the prestige. Um, 
you know, Inception, we have Cobb, who loses his wife, which is a you know, central component of that film. Uh, and then in Interstellar, we have another sort of single dad who is, is trying to keep his family together after the loss of his wife. Um, it's, it's, it's almost it's like a Disney kind of, problem against these women. <laughs> I'm telling you. It, for someone who's, you know, he, Christopher Nolan has been happily married for, for quite some time with his producing partner. But uh, he seems obsessed with the idea of a man sort of going alone and, and being left, you know, bereft by a, a female companion at some point in his life. Uh, fortunately, we don't really get that here with Tenet. Tenet, he does sort of up in that a bit, but it almost feels like it's an intentional thing. Like he's trying to avoid the trope because he knows that people have called him well, on it. Um, it's like he avoided the trope, but he didn't replace it with anything. Yes, and, and we'll we'll hit that when it comes to the protagonist, uh, John David Washington's character in Tenet, if you can call a character. I, I have zero problem with a character not having a name. Like, that's fine. That's cool if he's just the protagonist. But... There's not a lot going on under the hood no. with that character. So, Interstellar, for me, I I found it a film that was obviously problematic. The Christopher Nolan doesn't seem interested in conventional pacing. Uh, I know it's a common thing now to you know to to complain about with films. Oh, it was paced terribly, but with Nolan, unfortunately, it is an issue. Um, and it, it is it, to me, it speaks of of bloat, right? Of of Nolan doing what Nolan wants to do without much editing. Um, some of Nolan's problem in, in terms of the flow of his films, and this was suggested to me years ago. Um, I think I read about I read it in a, a review of his film, and now I cannot unsee it. And that is that Christopher Nolan, who began his work as a still photographer, and I think this is telling, has a very difficult time setting up shots wherein multiple things are happening simultaneously in frame. Uh, Christopher Nolan shoots one shot for one thing. So if you need to see a character who is turning the wheel of a car, he will shoot the wheel of the car turning, then he will shoot the car turning, and then he will shoot the character turning the car. And you will see all of those things in sequence, right? You will never simply see a scene where a character does all of those things at once. Um, and it's, it's I'm not going to say it's infuriating, because that would be an overstatement. But it is time Mildly annoying. <laughs> it is somewhat annoying, because you look at it and say, well, that's beautiful. And you could pause this frame of film at any moment and say that is beautiful because that's what still photographers do they create beautiful captured moments in time but when you then have the further complication of moving pictures of things happening it slows things down right um so you know you take a director like steven spielberg who is more than capable and happy to put together you know a two to three minute oneer to get through an exposition sequence or take us through, you know, a bunch of visual information that we need to understand. Uh, you know, think about um, Belloc's walk through the, the excavation site in Raiders of the Lost Ark. 
think about all of that information that you're being given, not only exposition of the character speaking, but all of the visual information that's being shared as the characters are moving. And then finally, you know, we come to that crucial moment where he realizes that Indiana Jones is, is digging up the hill and he knows that he's there. Um, you know, so a scene like that feels effortless. It feels like, you know, we're not really learning anything. But because Spielberg is so incredibly adept, he's capable of accomplishing three or four goals at once. Nolan, for all of his skill, and it is considerable, either has no interest in or simply cannot do that. Um, he will have two characters sitting at a table, and he'll shoot his coverage, and they will talk, but nothing else will happen. They will just be talking. And that is, that's just how it works for Chris Nolan. And he's not going to do anything else. Um, every once in a while, like Dunkirk, because he was doing this thing with time compression, right? He was telling stories that had happened, you know, two days ago, one day ago, five minutes ago, and he's layer them, layering them all together. He's sort of forced into that position a couple of times where he has to do multiple things at once to keep the story going. It is worth noting, I mean, it, we mentioned how long his films can be. Dunkirk is his shortest film by far. It's like 106 minutes. Um, you know, so it moves very swiftly as a result. It's a very tense and very engaging film. But it's just, it's, it's his thing, right? He just doesn't do it. Maybe it's because he shoots everything himself. Uh, very famously, Nolan runs no B cameras at all. He has no assistant. I mean, he has assistant directors, but they don't do any shooting. Nolan is behind the camera on every single shot, whether it's a character's hand reaching into a drawer to grab an entropic bullet, or it is, you know, sprinting across a... Not even Stanley Kubrick was that much of a control freak. No, no, Kubrick, I mean, just the process of making a film is so tedious anyway um, that most directors are always looking for ways to shorten the process. And, And Nolan is the opposite, right? He will direct everything to the minuscule moment. And and that's one of the things that I think makes him exceptional. It truly is. But at the same time, it gives his films a very particular flavor and a very particular flair. Sometimes he tones that down, either you know because he has to, to get through the story, but most of the time they are just on full display. And Interstellar for me is the first one where that really, really broke down. There are sequences in that movie that are far too long, that take way too long. And the other thing with Interstellar, for me, is just the film is broken up into almost distinct chunks, right? You have the opening of the film in the cornfields or whatever, I don't even know where, you know, I don't even remember, doesn't matter. Um, But like, you have that chunk, then you have the space chunk, then you have the sort of in-between chunk where... Matt Damon shows up for some weird reason. And then you have like the weird timey wimey fifth dimensional chunk. And then you have the end of the movie, which just feels unnecessary. Like the whole coda of the film as satisfying as it is to sort of see, you know, him decide to go be with Anne Hathaway or whatever. It, it just feels disconnected from everything else. And, and that film which is rare for, for Nolan was very bad at its exposition. Like if, if they had given me the explanation about 
time dilation one more time in the film, I think I might have blown my brains out. Because it's like, yeah, we get it. I also know, like, sophomore-level astrophysics, right? Which is another unfortunate reality of Christopher Nolan. A lot of Christopher Nolan's concepts and ideas feel like, hey, I'm a sophomore in college, and I just took this philosophy class. And I really Same thing happened. Talk about this idea. You know, I see... Like yeah, that with Inception, absolutely. all the people who saw it and they became like, you know, amateur film critics, the YouTube mm-hmm. channels that were spawned just from seeing that movie, you know, That's um, right. what is the true <laughs> secret? What is the real ending? He gave us all. The it's exactly what happened. Hello, Mr. Police man. I gave you all. It's exactly what happened in 1999 when the Matrix came out and it blew everyone's mind. And we all went home and made. Angel Fire and Geoshitty's pages all about our fandom of the Matrix. You know? Yeah, we read a lot of Baudrillard. We we talked about That's what happened. Kantian moral philosophy. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I d I don't know. I Interstellar felt like those kind of cringy high school ideas almost taken to the extreme. Yeah, and it's a film that feels overwrought. <laughs> Nolan, in interviews, claimed that he had been working on this story, trying to figure out a way to tell it since college. He also said that about Tenet, though. <laughs> I have a feeling he's well, going to yeah, say this Tenet, about Tenet's all of his was, movies. <laughs> Tenet's what I was referring to. So oh, okay. I, I didn't catch the first part of that. Yes, but, um, but Tenet definitely has that tone. Uh, Interstellar did as well, although it, he, he space you know, sort of t- the mechanics of the space, they're running behind it very famously, the, you know, the black hole simulation that they did with Kip Thorne. That eventually was was shown to be accurate when we actually recorded one. You know, that kind of stuff's all very cool. And again, speaks to Nolan's sort of like respect for technology and its role in filmmaking. But, you know, I, I don't want to leave off a, a brief discussion of Dunkirk. Uh, it's a very strong film. It doesn't feel it's the most it's the least Christopher Nolan feeling film in his his entire body of work, in my opinion. Dunkirk feels like a film that could have been told by anyone rather than, you know, Christopher Nolan having this particular flair for the types of stories that he seems to enjoy telling. Uh, I think it's it's a good war film, right? It's a good dad film. Like sit down and watch a film about the war. With your dad, you know it's that kind of movie. You know it's got good performances, although I st- I just can't stand Harry Styles. I just want to punch him every time I see him. Like I don't have anything against the guy. I don't he means nothing to me, but just his face just is very punchable mm. to me. And so that film is tough because he's in it a lot. I think I know who that is. <laughs> uh, he was in that band, the One Direction band, and then he became an actor because you know why not? Yeah. Because you can definitely do that just because you can sing. Because in Hollywood, you fail um, upwards. That's right. Um, and s- especially when you're a mildly attractive British man. And so, like, it's, but it's good. It, but again, it's, it's a film that, for no reason, is playing with time and representation of time on screen. And, you know, if you haven't seen Dunkirk, the, the trick of Dunkirk is that what you believe are events happening simultaneously are events stretched over various spanses of time, right? One is happening over the course of a week. 
one is happening over the course of a day, one is happening over the course of like 15 minutes. And, and they all get intersected with each other at key moments. And it's, it's effective. You know, it's not bad, but it's entirely unnecessary to tell that story. Um, and perhaps that's the problem, is that my personal feeling at this point is that Christopher Nolan is so bored with filmmaking as an art and as a profession that the only way that he can find any satisfaction in what he's doing is by completely destroying and then rebuilding from the ground up how a film is made and told. It, it reminds me of, of John Carpenter talking about Ghosts of Mars and how he just layered on time and weird time, you know, flashbacks and flash forwards and flash sideways just because he was bored. Like, I don't know. I, I Just the mechanics of doing this are no longer interesting to me. And I feel like Nolan is kind of at that space, but he hasn't admitted it to himself yet. And, and I could be totally wrong, but it's this film feels more than any of his others. Like, that's exactly the problem. Because this is a story that could be told not necessarily more simply, but at least in a way that is more sensible. I don't know. What do you think? Because uh, I, I guess I guess we're going to get just jump right into Tenet here uh, because this is our, our most recent Christopher Nolan experience. I'm sure another one is coming soon. Christopher Nolan is not going away anytime soon. And I, and I hope but. that he doesn't for a long time. I love his movies. And, oh, yeah. and I guess that's I the do. thing. Like I'm going to talk shit on this movie because that's what I do. I talk shit on every movie I watch. Um, but I, it, it can't be overstated. I'm a huge fan of this man's work mm -hmm. because that's that's what you do when you're a real fan of something is you can critique it because you feel like you can. But this this is the weakest Christopher Nolan film I think I have seen personally. Just where I see his like I, I said before, I see his gifts, but I just don't see them being employed as hugely, as bombastically and as beautifully as they were in something like Inception where that was just such a beautiful film um even though it wasn't my favorite it was lovely to look at and it was probably the best showcase of his ability you know you were you were saying he kind of focuses on one thing at a time i think inception was really the best showcase of that and how every frame is kind of literally a painting this was not though yes i don't feel like i could pause this movie and really enjoy any particular frame because um, nothing memorable I, was I happening. <laughs> like, what was going on in the frame that I'm supposed to care about? It's not like the Inception, yes. where when I think Inception, I think the spinning top. I think the, the, the two little kids, you know, and their faces being obscured. I think of Maul jumping off a freaking ledge. I think of, you know, the, the hallway and, you know, Joseph Gordon-Levitt being thrown into a ceiling. You know, there are all these visual moments that sort of come flooding back. Tenet doesn't have an identity like Inception or The Prestige or The Dark Knight or Memento. I just, I didn't get a strong impression from it. I, I have a theory on that. Um, so Christopher Nolan 
for the the early part of his career, really up up through inception, including um, including on the Dark Knight, worked exclusively with cinematographer Wally Pfister. Yeah. Um, and I, I have no reserve about saying that Wally Pfister is is probably one of the most important hands down directors of photography in in my he's he's right up there i mean he's not i i'm not gonna say he's in the same league as somebody like um oh who did, works for the coen brothers all the time uh uh <laughs> um i know who you're talking about um oh roger yes Dickens. Right. Roger Deakins is the greatest cinematographer working today. Hands down, bar none. Nobody even comes close. But if anybody did come close, it would probably be Wally Pfister. But then, very famously, Wally Pfister took a big swing and tried to direct his own film starring Johnny Depp, produced by Christopher Nolan. That was a huge freaking failure. Um, Transcendence. I remember. Yes, uh, it it was a bad was film, bad. It was a bad movie, <laughs> and he he made that movie, and then he is has not really worked much since, and ever since, Nolan, who again likes to work with, he likes to work with the same group of people, over and over again, um, and and he has worked with uh, Hoyt von Hoytema. Ever since, who is also great. Oitema cut his teeth with David Fincher. Uh, he was the the uh, cinematographer on Zodiac, which is gorgeous. Uh, Zodiac is um, well. Is it my favorite David Fincher film? I don't know. I can't decide I, anymore. I know it's up there. It's the one I watched. I mean, the Fincher. Most. <laughs> Fincher is is an incredibly uh, well. We're gonna do another. We're probably gonna need to talk about like Panic or something. <laughs> In order to get him on here, get him on here, but we definitely will talk about Fincher at some point in the, the very near future. Um, you know, I I love Hoytema's work. He did Let the Right One In. With he he did do um, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. I don't know if you saw uh, that. I one. did. I did. Um, I, it I it's great. That was great Gary movie. Oldman, right? Um, uh, yeah. Yes, yes, he played uh, what was his name? George Smiley. Yeah, right. Um, so I mean, he's he's good really good so you know Hoytema is is a, a really great cinematographer but I really feel like Nolan's collaborations with Wally Pfister produced more visually striking yes films. because Interstellar has moments that are visually striking but as a whole it's it's sort of a blank it's another it's, sort of it's another watch. film that doesn't have a very strong identity I mean the identity of that film, unfortunately, is the meme of Matthew McConaughey crying. And that's probably yeah. not good. <laughs> no, no. Um, I, I will say that I, even though the, the fifth dimensional entity slash Morse code into a watch scene in Interstellar is visually fascinating. Like, it's, it's gorgeous in the way that it looks. It makes absolutely no sense in terms of the story, but it's pretty. But Hoytema has, has worked with him ever since, and I feel like his films, while they certainly have a sort of visual coherence, they don't have that identity that Pfister often brought to the table with his work. Um, 
because there are iconic moments in The Prestige. There are iconic moments in The Dark Knight. There are iconic moments in Inception, but it's it's harder to point to them in Tenet. I, I think there are cool shots, like, you know, them running up the building on the, the bungee cords. It's cool, but it's not. It's visually interesting. Well, I'm, I'm going to... Uh, it was a bit generic looking. Just, it yeah, had a very... This is a, a Jerry Bruckheimer produced action <laughs> film. Like I Ooh, and I hate ouch. saying that because ah. it's like yeah, man, that hurts, just it? this just didn't feel special at all. Like I've I've become accustomed to his movies being kind of special, and this was maybe the first oh, time. Yeah. Even with you know stuff like Dunkirk, where it still was trying to do something. I guess I didn't like it that much, but it was still trying to do something. Mm-hmm. This just did not, this just didn't do it. And maybe it's because I was expecting something different because of the plot that it serves up. I was hoping it was going to do a little bit more. I don't know. Yeah, so I, I guess let's let's go ahead and get into it. We've kind of like, you know, beaten the bush and, and talked about Nolan a little bit. But let's let's talk about Tenet itself. Uh, the most recent expression of Nolan's particular obsessions with filmmaking. So, once again, I feel like part of the issue here is that Nolan has gone back to the well a little bit. And, and once again, we have what basically amounts to a heist film. Yeah. Um, which, a, a shocking number of his films. Are they just, I mean, they're just heist films. <laughs> uh, you know, Inception is a heist. I mean, that's the, that was the joke of Inception. It's a mind heist, right? Like, it's a heist inside your mind. Um, you know. Really, the last two of his Batman movies are heist films, right? Uh, Bane is doing most of the heisting, I guess, but still. Um, and and this, yet again, is, is a series of heists, right? <laughs> Culminating in, in probably his most visually interesting heist, if we're being honest, at the, the you know, the secret art house <laughs> duty tax-free place you know whatever um <laughs> with the the 747 crashing into the building you know gotta love that kind of stuff uh but we we open the film right we're not going to do the the scene by scene breakdown but the film opens with an, an opera under siege uh so I, I guess we do need to go ahead and address that this film is is built around a couple of key ideas one of them is the concept of the palindrome the backwards and forwards meeting in the middle is an essential component of the, the movie itself, the way it's structured, the story it's attempting to tell, whatever. But it's also built around the Sator or, or Sator Square, uh, which is an, an ancient Greek tablet that is comprised of, what I guess, five words that all link together, sort of Sudoku style, and um, provide a, a group of palindromes. So the, the five words are Sator, opera. Uh, of course, is the, the, the uh, opera, Arepo, Tenet, uh, and Rotas. And so these five words, when arranged in a square, form a series of unending palindromes, right? So again, this feels very middle school, a very sophomore philosophy <laughs> class. Hey, I just read the this. Wikipedia article about this thing. <laughs> And, and he has, has built a film that touches upon it. But it, really, the idea is, is palindromic. 
And I actually don't mind when, when filmmakers do this and they try to branch out and make movies about no. Wikipedia articles. I think that's cool. Because No, I mean like, you know, <laughs> think of all the science think of all the science fiction stories that emerged because of an article in the, the scientific And and for me like, it's just what happens. I think back to the science fiction stories and science fiction movies especially that inspired me to go out and learn something because I saw something like it in a movie. And that's sure. you know, if 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 Tenet inspires someone to go and read about time travel and entropy, good, please, that's wonderful. But it it's silly. <laughs> it's very silly. Yeah, so the the film opens with this opera heist. We're, we're quickly introduced to a man that we will simply know as the protagonist. Uh, his name is never mentioned. His, his identity is never disclosed. He is simply the main character of the film. That's it. Yeah. So this opera heist is presumably to obtain, uh, I think they're told some sort of like nuclear device. Um, and so he is brought in as a member of some clandestine agency. I think it's hinted CIA that he's supposed to recover this. And it's, it's very action packed. John David Washington is doing a lot of great on-screen running, you know, just, just really, you know, balls to the wall. Uh, it isn't worth noting here that uh, John David Washington is the son of Denzel Washington, uh, which he he does have a, a tremendous, uh, he has a lot of charisma like his father. Uh, I would not say that he is as good of an actor as Denzel Washington, but he's also very young. Uh, but it's worth mentioning that he was also a football linebacker. So he... He has a certain physicality that he brings to the role that is actually... And, and it might transcend that acting ability in some roles. <laughs> Perhaps. I, I could really see him with with not much effort becoming a very, very top-notch action star. Um, if that's the direction. I mean, we were very lucky and, and kind of hope that Denzel Washington was a great actor who then made action movies. Because it doesn't usually happen the, that way. It usually happens the other way. <laughs> no. So, but really what this opera heist does almost immediately is it demonstrates that we are going to have absolutely no idea what the hell is going on in this film. Because what this opera heist is and what they're trying to do is so unclear and so seemingly not the point that it, it almost renders the entire scene as interesting and exciting as it is. Uh, it could have been a lot shorter if we were just going to arrive at it not meaning anything. Right, but he's collecting bombs. He's he's trying to save people. Somehow they they put a gas into this giant auditorium that instantaneously <laughs> that makes everyone fall asleep. <laughs> and then there's this there's that one shot where like the guy's getting shot at in the chair, and the lady behind him is obviously like laughing. <laughs> <laughs> She's just giggling in her chair, like her shoulders keep moving. You're like, oh, I'm on the camera. Uh, but you know, it's it's very weird, and there's lots of like double cross of double cross stuff going on but it, again it's like to what end and what's happening in the key moment the, the most important moment is that our, our protagonist is rescued by a mysterious man in a similar getup to him who fires a bullet backwards a bullet that emerges from its intended you know shooting location and goes through a guy in reverse fashion and then he runs off and so our, our protagonist is betrayed and captured 
he finds the thing he's looking for, but it's not some kind of nuclear device. It ends up being uh, some kind of weird, like, block. And he doesn't really know what it is. But he sees it. He somehow is able to smuggle it out. He gets it out. But he gets captured. And in getting captured, he gets tortured. And rather than give up the goods, which apparently people would have expected him to do, even though that doesn't make a lot of sense, he gets tremendously tortured, and then he takes a drug to try and kill himself. And, again, like, it's all very exciting. It's all shot very well. It's cool-looking. They're on, like, a train yard and stuff. But, I mean, I, I just have questions. I'm like, what is happening? <laughs> What's going on? No one is it's telling us. It's almost anything. like if we and, move fast enough, no one will have time to wonder what's going on. <laughs> Right. The other issue, I think, um, is that I don't think Christopher Nolan has any interest in helping an audience understand what is happening. He is almost literally planning on you watching the film again to know. Because at the end of this movie, you understand what's happening at the beginning of this movie. Mm Mm-hmm. But you have to make it to the end of the movie to understand it at all. And hey, I'm fine with that. But I don't think everybody is fine with that. Given the number of people I've watched movies with who begin with the question, what's going on? <laughs> I, I don't think yes. I don't think people put up with that. Right. Now, I mean, I watched this with my kids. I I, I took them to see it. And and my nine year old got it. Like he was not confused. It's not a confusing movie. So, no, there's nothing confusing about Tenet. The only thing confusing about Tenet is the fact that the filmmaker doesn't want you to know what's going on until you have seen the entire picture, right? He's intentionally withholding pieces of the jigsaw puzzle from you until he wants you to have that information. So and information while I think project. that worked as a narrative device in Inception, because the nature of dreams involves sort of subconscious and compartmentalized ideas, I think that that really worked. In this movie, it's about manipulating time and events, not hiding or obscuring things. So, like, I understand playing with the order of events, but that doesn't mean that you should hide things from your audience or you should try to hold back from your audience. If anything, this movie would have probably benefited from leaning into what other time travel narratives typically do, which is to front load you with a lot of stuff and then watch the action play out. Like, you know, back to the future. Right. I'm, and so, uh, broad scope, if you haven't seen this yet, you should. It's not a terrible no. film by any stretch. Like, it's it's impeccably made. It's well acted. It's decently shot. It's got some really cool action sets. I'm being stupidly nitpicky. All kinds of time and reversal. Yeah, I mean, what we're doing here is pointing out that Christopher Nolan's type of filmmaking, the, the my my big thing right now, and I think I've even mentioned it on the show before, is is Christopher Nolan seems seems weirdly obsessed now with the concept of recontextualization. He is very fascinated by showing you a film or showing you scenes that you interpret one way, 
But then after the picture has been rendered in its full form, you go back and say, oh, this is actually what was going on, right? Now the scenes that you watched before and you understood from a basic standpoint, now you recontextualize those scenes with the information that you have, and now you see what that scene really is. So in many ways, to say go watch Tenet is actually say to go watch Tenet twice, which I'm not sure is something that everybody's going to be down with. Yeah. Um, so our protagonist, he, he attempts to kill himself. He wakes up from that, not dead somehow, and is now been recruited into a secretive organization, even more secretive than the organization he worked for before <laughs> called Tenet. just secret organizations all the way down, just all the way down. And it's called tenant. And the only thing that the guy who recruits him into the organization can tell him is its name. And then a a interleaving finger gesture. He says, I can give you that. Those, that's all I can tell you. Then they drop him off on an ocean windmill <laughs> for an indeterminate amount of time. Again, this all is like, oh, okay, this is a thing that's happening. After you've seen the film, you realize that this was them removing him from the timeline for a set period of time so that another version of himself could go and fuck shit up but you don't know that, and you're not going to know that until the end of the movie. Like, literally, the end of and, the movie. You're not going to know what that and means. And so it's, <laughs> even though I find that kind of experimentation really cool, it's like you're kind of sure. ruining your movie a little bit. Because, <laughs> like, your audience is supposed to yes. like it the first time and the second time, and every time after that. Right. Right. It's, it's you know... It, and, and other films, I mean, we talked already about The Matrix. I mean, like, The Matrix does this, right? But it only does it until about the yeah. midway mark, right? Like, the first half of the movie, once you realize, oh, it was all a simulation, you go back and watch that part a second time, you're like, oh, cool, yeah, I see. Oh, there's there's all this green tinting. Like, but, like, the movie goes out of its way to show you that, too. On. Like, it doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't expect you to go back and do all of that work yourself. Like, they go back into The Matrix, and they're like, wow, I used to eat there. You know, like, this yes. movie doesn't do that. No, it would be like if if Back to the Future started when he drove through the dude <laughs> and then ended with Marty waking up and going to Doc's place and getting the call to meet him, <laughs> meet him at the mall that night. Like that that's what the structure of this movie is. Because it's it's literally starting in the middle and then going to the end and then looping all the way the fuck back around again and saying like that's actually where this And is. as a concept, like I get it. Oh I, <laughs> I mean I, I can imagine I can imagine the flowchart, you know, the timeline flowchart on Chris Nolan's wall showing where all the little pieces split together but how reasonably speaking how much can you ask of an audience to just follow along without any idea of what's going on and nolan i think was betting on the high structure to get him there right that you're just got characters who are trying to get things which generally is compelling enough i think he was he was Basically trusting that and trusting that if you told the characters that this is about time and time travel, that you would just sort of give them a pass, right? That it will all be explained. And it is, 
but you are literally going two hours and 15 minutes deep into this movie before you get any real clear explanations. about. For, for me, the moment that I, I was put off officially was when Clemence Posey said, don't try to understand it. Yes. When you have to do in that in like... a movie, you have failed somewhere. You, like, you should never have to utter those words. Your audience should already be saying, I don't care how this works. I just mm-hmm. want to see it. It's, it's the loop. Given, I, I mean, the perfect right? example is, and it probably will always be, you built a time machine out of a DeLorean, and like we just accepted that. We, just, we bought it because mm-hmm. it sounds good, sounds right. Those cars look really futuristic and spacey anyway. Sounds like they could be a time machine. Yeah. This movie, though, that was insulting to me. I'm like, why would you insult your audience like that and say, oh, don't try to understand it. You're too dumb anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, again, Ryan Johnson did this in Looper <sighs> where he had a character say, just don't, if we could sit here all day and try and work this out, just don't worry about it. But that one comes at a point where two characters at very opposite ends of a spectrum are One's trying to figure it out. The other one's saying, I've already been through this. We don't care. And, and it works a little better. And it's kind of played for a laugh. This one, as with most Christopher Nolan movies, this movie is as serious yeah, as part. No laughter. And there's, there's, there are no jokes. Robert Pattinson movie. is trying, <laughs> and he still can't. Yeah. And he's a charming just dude. And he just can't do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I guess broad spectrum strokes. What we have here. What our protagonist is quickly introduced to, what Tenet is, is an organization attempting to stop the destruction of our time by nefarious forces in the future. Uh-huh. So the future apparently is so shit, and they are so angry at us for jacking everything up, and, it, and the film clearly states this, that, that this, is, this is a war on us because of, of the the mishandling of our ecology and, and basically climate change that the future has decided that if they just get rid of us, if they just legitimately wipe out the entirety of the planet earth, all the people that somehow in the future that will improve. Yeah. Things. <laughs> and once again, why they're attempting to do this, what the mechanics of this actually is uh, or are, and how they're going to improve the world by killing all of us. We shall never know. <laughs> is not fully explained, nor is it ever really even attempted. It's just, again, accept, right? Accept that this is, is what is happening. In concept, very cool, right? People from the future trying to kill the people in the past. Okay. How is that happening? We don't know. Uh, they apparently send stuff back in bombs that are buried underground uh. because people don't mess with them. And so if you just dig up the bombs, they know where they are because they found them in the future. So they put the stuff in the bombs, send them back in time, knowing that nobody would have messed with them. And then you can communicate. I, I know that I, I talked about this a little bit before uh, our episode, but I'm, I'm going to go ahead and do it here. If you are listening and you've never played Remedy Entertainment's game Quantum Break, please go play it before you watch this movie because it is, <laughs> it's this movie, but how I wanted to see it. 
and what I was sort of expecting. Sure. Um, Quantum Break is like the ultimate Christopher Nolan movie inside of a video game. And and it's also a time travel yes. story. And it also does the the reversal, you know, objects moving backwards and forwards in time. It does that really elegantly and beautifully. Just if you haven't played it, it's like, it's what this movie should have been to me. So just saying that, like, that's, that's all I could think about watching Tenet was how good Quantum Break was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I agree. Quantum Break is, is a heavily underrated game. And you can probably get it now for like $8 or something. It's it's totally worth it and, and quite a bit of fun, all things considered. Um, yes, when I, when I saw the trailer for this film, which I try not to be tainted by trailers anymore because most of them are bad. And, and... Tenet's trailer was was very minimal. Like they didn't show anything in that trailer except for the reverse time stuff, specifically the car sequence, car crash sequence on the highway. Um, and I was like, oh, cool, a movie that is is playing with time. But what I didn't expect was that it's not so much about playing with time in the moment. It's about playing with time in these really big long chunks. And for some reason, it doesn't work. You can't really see the plan, you know? We never really see anyone's plan for how they're going to affect the past or the future because we don't see any of these mysterious shadow organizations. Um, no, it's it's all it's, very bad. It's not Marty and Doc. And and honestly, I, I know I, I keep bringing that up too, but it kind of needs a simpler dynamic than what we get here. Um, right. Um because the protagonist doesn't stay alone, you can't have your main character run around a world like this alone. They need to talk to people. And so we are quickly introduced to, uh, he requests backup from somewhere. <laughs> uh, I guess other people in this group that he's just joined and doesn't know anything about. Um, but really, sort of, again, out of nowhere, which has some context by the end of the film, we are introduced to Neil who is, is now all of a sudden his sidekick. And Neil is Robert Pattinson, or played by Robert Pattinson, uh, doing his very best Christopher Hitchens impression. And he's lovely in this movie. And he's very good. Uh, we've talked about it before, you know, when we, we reviewed Twilight. Pattinson is, is an underrated actor. He has certainly come into his own in the last five or six years. He's picking cool projects. He's finding ways to, to further sort of demonstrate his skill, things like The Lighthouse and... and uh, Cosmopolis. Oh, it was I the other was super really experimental. Cool. Yeah, so I mean, he's he's doing cool things, and he's very good in this. And honestly, I think Neil and John David Washington are a really good team. They they, they work together well. They're, they play off each other well. And really, this movie needed to be them. And for the most part, it is. I mean, I don't want to make it seem like they are not, like, teamed up doing stuff. They definitely are for a good chunk of this film. But Neil feels like Neil feels like Gandalf but it's in that... this movie. He just kind of shows up when he needs to be. Yeah. Well, it's that narrative withholding. It's because we're having things withheld from us that we don't know how to invest in a relationship between these two characters. Yeah, it's it's a very strange dynamic. And it's something that Nolan is, again, doing very intentionally. But does it work as a film? I mean, it does, does it matter that it's intentional if it makes your movie bad? And, and that's the question. And in this case, I, I just don't think 
the ends justify the means here. I don't think the film and its narrative structure can survive given the choices that he's making. Um, so very rapidly, we get a whole bunch of information. There's somebody who's selling these entropic bullets, so they must have some kind of connection to the future. So they're going to go break into their house and you know, figure out where the bullets are coming from and all this different stuff. That seemed like a lot to just show up at their house and have a chat. I mean, they didn't really seem that bothered. They probably could have just knocked on the door. Yeah, and there was a lot going on. They bungee jump up the side of a building, which, again, is very cool. Uh, it seems like... That was a, awesome. Seems like overkill to just, you know, go in and take the elevator, punch some people, maybe. Um, but so Neil is, is like a fixer in the film. He's the guy who helps the protagonist, gets what he needs. And basically, we get a whole bunch of roundabout bullshit that gets us to Elizabeth Debicki and Kenneth Braille. <laughs> like that's really, yeah. we have to going. see Michael Caine first. He has to make that's his right. little my cameo of him eating. Oh my God. Why did they do that? Michael Caine has to write the blank check from the British government so he can do whatever he wants for mm. again, seemingly no reason. But our, our protagonist here needs to, has been given the task of trying to find where these entropic bullets are coming from. So that he can then, you know, figure out who has made this connection with the future and is being manipulated by them. Uh, spoiler alert, it's Kenneth Branagh. Oh, oh no. <laughs> uh, ah, it's a Branagh. And there is this, this like side story about Branagh's wife, played by Elizabeth Debicki, um, who is, is very good. She's very, she's very flat in this movie. Extremely. Um, like. She feels, it, I mean, it feels like she's just being pushed down, right? Like, I've seen Elizabeth Debicki act, and she is not a bad actress at all, but it just feels like she is being restrained inside of a tiny little mime box and just told you cannot come out of the mime box. You can't have emotions. And maybe that's because at the end, she kind of gets a little burst of emotion, but by the time we get there, I was like, I don't care about yeah, any of Yeah, that's the problem problems. is I did not care about I didn't care of what happened to her. I kept asking myself, why are we helping this woman? Yeah. Why are we so concerned so about getting her obsessed. out of her situation? Um, also, her situation is the epitome of, of, a, of a very, very unrelatable problem being like an art. Yeah. <laughs> an art authenticator who... Right is shamed because she, she incorrectly authenticated, authenticated a painting. Like, okay. I, I don't know. Like, I, these sound like very white problems to have. Right. Like very, like I own a boat problems. Yes. And I just, I have very large. I don't boats. know if, I don't know if any audience is going to be able to latch on to that. I couldn't. It's like, Oh, you've got a mortgage. Ooh, wow. <laughs> um, yeah. I, so, I mean, roundabout like way of getting there protagonist needs to to get in with the sator guy they the angle they decide to take is to approach the wife because the wife has been is an art appraiser and she has been shamed somehow and and again where all this information is coming from is unclear at this point we again find out later but for now it's just neil kind of being like oh this is the shit that's going on um so she she had a it sounds like she had a relationship with a, a paint, uh, a forger, basically, who would forge pieces of art that he would then sell. 
She had a relationship with him, so she appraised one of his forgeries as a legitimate piece. That piece was then bought by her husband, Sator, played by Kenneth Branagh, and now he lords that piece over her as some kind of blackmail to where, because she misappraised this art, now she can't leave him, she can't take their son, she has to basically obey his every whim or else he will reveal that she misappraised a piece of art and, and like, ruin her. And 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 I I want to be clear, I'm not laughing at domestic violence at all. Because no, her situation is really quite bad. There is some some hardcore Even though I really admit I laughed really hard when Kenneth Branagh said, If I can't have you, no one can. Yeah, it was so like really, really oh, the movie did that. That's in the movie now. Yeah. Um so, so that was rough. Mm. So like I'm not laughing at that part of it, but aspects of her plight made I mean, it minimized the character's struggle with Sator and, and the violence and their relationship by making it sort of silly in nature. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like I, that was just that was ridiculous to me. It's it's all very round. It's it's all very roundabout. Like it's just like okay, but why? Why does this matter? Um, and and it kind of doesn't. But it's it's a piece that gets us to another place, right? Because the piece of art that he's holding over her head, which she needs so that she can somehow then have the ability to escape with her son, I, is is in a, a duty-free art-holdy place at an airport because rich people who don't want to pay taxes on their art just leave it at the airport. I live at the airport now. Like in that Tom Hanks. And then they just come and look That's at That's where it my at the art airport, is. You know, it's like, okay. I mean, I, I have no doubt that these actually are a real thing. Of course. Sure. Absolutely. Just, just in terms of how you're going to get your audience on board with this plot is the problem. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I mean, these are, this, these are very white people problems. Like, <laughs> really, really white people problems. And, the lack of, of hard evidence for why we should give a shit is the real problem. Now, it makes for an excellent action sequence, right? Just as the meeting between John David Washington and Elizabeth Debicki slash art dealer led to a really cool action scene where he beats the ever-living crap out of a bunch of guys in a, in a, a you know, kitchen. That was cool. That was really cool. That was a cool scene, man. Really good. Because he's about to hit the... He's about to hit him with the... The meat hammer? Yeah. Ah, that was cool. And then he, oh, he kicks their ass. He's going to tenderize That was a little bit face, of that, right? uh, that was a little bit of that equalizer kind of thing that I want to see from a, yes. a Washington like I said, spawn. I, I will I will defend John David Washington's performance in this movie till the yeah. end of the earth because he does a lot with very, very little. He doesn't <laughs> talk much. He doesn't really express emotions very often, but he is... He, Really, none of those to express. He is, yeah. There's, there's nothing there. I mean, he's a character called the protagonist, and there's a reason for that. But so, now I feel like I don't feel like I understood why he was doing any of this. Right, and again, it all kind of comes together at the end of the movie. But after two and a half hours, are you invested enough to care that those answers have come? Yeah. Not really. So the bulk of this film, the 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 vast majority of its runtime, is 
John David Washington and Robert Pattinson attempting to get a thing, a MacGuffin, a literal MacGuffin, that is a piece of a formula from the future that contains some kind of thing that's kind of like a bomb that'll blow up the world, kind of. And if Sator gets it, he's going to kill everybody. Well, because the formula is what the people in the future need to do the nefarious things that they need to do. But the scientist who came up with the, the time bomb <laughs> hid the formula in the past so that the future people couldn't get it. And so now Sator, Kenneth Branagh, has been attempting to reassemble the formula and then send it back to the future by hiding it in a <laughs> hole that no one will be able to go in so that the people of the future could dig it up because he sent them an email that has the location of the bomb hole with the formula in it so that they can find it and destroy us all. Like, I changed my mind. This movie rules. <laughs> I mean, like, just saying those sequences of words out loud is so dumb. I mean, it's awesome. It's the kind of thing that a sci-fi time travel movie would absolutely do. Like, I have zero problem with it. But it's like, what? <laughs> what? And Sator has uh. cancer because he found the original message telling him what he needed to do because he was the only guy who would take like a nuclear bomb site cleanup job in some destroyed Russian city. That's why Just, I, it's like, okay, whatever. It made no sense. It made and and there's and a, I feel like, like it went out of its way to do that. It went out of its way to be cagey, and it's like, why? Yeah, like just come out and say it, man. And so, and that's really the thing is that this formula from the future that they're trying that has been separated out and hidden by all these groups, presumably groups associated with Tenet, being reassembled is is like the doomsday weapon for the people in the future. Right. Once they have that technology, they can send a bomb back in time and they can just wipe us all out without needing to do anything. And so, like, wouldn't it be easier if, they, if you could recruit crazy people like Kenneth Branagh's character by just knowing where they're going to be at a moment in time because you've examined the historical record and you know, okay, this asshole is going to be cleaning up this excavation site on January 7th. Me historical you know. documents. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Precisely. You know, <laughs> couldn't you just recruit a bunch of crazy people to just blow up the world traditionally? Like, is that also okay? Or maybe there's something special about the time, the future time bomb that just kills all the humans but leaves the world preserved. So by the time they roll around to the future, you know, like, everything's better. But how will all the people in the future still be alive? I don't know. Because you killed them. <laughs> Maybe, like, three of them. But they're happy now that they're dead. They're, exactly. Now that they're dead, the world's a great place to live. You know? I mean, I don't disagree with that. No. No, it's probably true. <laughs> but, I mean, this is why time travel movies are hard. This is why they're extremely, extremely hard. 
And it's not because you can poke holes in them and create plot holes. Like any movie, you can do that. Even Back to the Future, arguably one of the most satisfying, from a structural standpoint, one of the most satisfying time travel films ever. Just because it sets up its world and it puts its pieces in place and then it just rigidly sticks to them, right? Nothing extraneous is there so that nothing extraneous can get in the way of completing this little loop that they've got for themselves. That's why Back to the Future and even its sequels, which get more problematic but still sort of work in the same way, are are satisfying time travel films. You can do anything in a time travel movie, but you've got to have rules and you have to stick to them. And Nolan's approach here is to simply not explain anything (laughs) and hope that you just kind of go with it. And while I applaud that approach, it's very bold. It's really, really unsatisfying. Again, by the end of it, you kind of have a better understanding, but still very hazy. So in their their back and forth with Sator, he you know goes to dinner parties. He meets him. They go boating together. Like there's just all of this weird. Like why are you this close to this guy? Like what are you doing? And all of it's in service of trying to uncover his method of communicating with the future and how he's getting this stuff from them. And they're quite literally sending him money. They're sending him gold back through all these like exploded bombs in this town that he grew up in. And, and they're all like, I don't know, magnetized or something. It's very strange and it's not really explained. But so in essence, like they're just using him as a a prop to, to execute their plans. And John David Washington one of my issues with the second act of this film is that John David Washington has basically no agency. He's just yeah. doing what he's told. And, and really for the entirety of the movie, that's all he's doing. He's just doing what he's told. There's a little twist on that at the end, but again, it doesn't make the second act of this movie any better. Even when I watch it the second time, knowing why he's doing the things he's doing, it's still not satisfying to watch because he's just kind of fumbling along. Well, it's it's extra unsatisfying, I think, in a time travel story because you want you want to see your main character exercise agency and then affect the timeline and events. And we don't see that. No. And and if anything, this movie is about how the timeline cannot be manipulated and that, in fact, it has already been manipulated. And you are the one in the timeline that has been manipulated. Congratulations. Um, Because that's the big thing of this movie. Let's not beat around the bush. The protagonist is the guy who started Tenet, but not yet in the future. And he has, in fact, been manipulating his past self to do all of the things necessary to set up his future self to be successful in defeating the future. But why would he need to manipulate himself to that end? when future people just approached Kenneth Branagh and started giving him old stuff and couldn't his future self just have been like, hey, here's what I'm going to be doing in a few years. Would you like to get started on that now? I don't know. I don't know why it had to be a big ruse. It's a temporal pincer attack. Which is a phrase that you unfortunately will hear multiple times in this film. Temporal pincer attack. Okay. Uh, which again, cool concept, interesting idea. This is sort of executed badly. 
So really, bad. what we find out at the end of this film, which the end of this movie does have, there are, there are several bombastic set pieces in this film, which are absolutely expected in a Chris Nolan movie at this point. Um, and he is very good at executing them. There is a, a, again, there's a MacGuffin hunt that takes place uh, in a, a, a uh, car chase where they're trying to get one of these pieces of the formula that's being transported. And it's, it's very cool. They have a bunch of trucks. They slow the truck down. They steal the thing. And basically we go all the way through it. And then we are introduced to the concept of a machine that can reverse the entropy on a human. We've seen in Tropic. They took artifacts. way too long to get here. Yes, we should have seen this and been doing this much earlier in the film. And I guess we do when they steal, try to steal the painting back from the Magic Duty Free Shop. Um, <laughs> they, we, we see one of these machines. We don't know what it is yet. Um, and then they have this cool reverse hallway fight where they're fighting a mask guy, or John David Washington is fighting a mask guy in the hallway. And like one guy's moving in reverse and then the other guy's moving forward. And it looks very cool. Like it's a super well executed sequence. It's mm -hmm. exactly what you would expect from the mind bending power of Christopher. Nolan. Like it's all of that and, and more. It's gorgeous. But then the guy escapes and it <laughs> means nothing because it's just a cool scene that that is over and no one cares about for the rest of the movie until we loop back to it because this movie loops back to things over and over again. But basically, we, we get introduced to a machine that can reverse your entropy. You come out moving the opposite direction in time on the other side. And, and so this moment was super hype. It's the one shown in all the trailers when he's got the you know, oxygen mask on because you can't breathe reverse oxygen, right? <laughs> um, okay. Um, let me sidebar here because here, here's the thing with Christopher Nolan. It started in The Dark Knight Rises. And I think now that Christopher Nolan, in any scene where characters need to be doing action, so in, in action scenes, he is putting people in helmets or face masks so that we cannot see their, their mouths move so that he can dub the lines later. I, I am for, I've, I've suspected this for years. Tenet confirms it 100%, because any time a character is doing an action-y thing in this movie, they are wearing a goddamn face mask, <laughs> and it is impossible to see their mouths, and it is impossible to understand a word that they are saying. This is a movie that if you have any kind of hearing, I have excellent hearing, like super good hearing in, in both ears, and I struggle to understand what these characters are saying when they have this shit on their faces. And it, to the, it was to the point that on my rewatch, I just turned subtitles on. I was like, fuck it. Like, yeah, I, I cannot subtitles. understand you. I have no idea what is coming out of your mouth. And I know the things that you're saying right now are important. Like, I know what you're saying is something I need to understand to get this freaking movie. And I do not get you. And it's, it's a thousand times worse than Bane in Dark Knight Rises. Although it's close. Interstellar, they were always in those stupid helmets, couldn't understand a word that they were saying when the action was going on. I think it's just, it simplifies Nolan's process. Since when he shoots this stuff, he doesn't shoot tremendous amounts of B-roll. He doesn't, he's not, I mean, he is a guy that apparently will shoot multiple takes of things, but he does not, he's not like Fincher level where I'm going to get a hundred takes and then pick my favorite. 
I think he shoots them in the mask like three times, and then he's like, we'll just dub it in later, man. Once we figure out what you're going to say. It's fine. And it's, it's legitimately the, the most technically baffling thing in this movie because it is, it is legitimately debilitating to your ability to understand the film. And I don't get it. It makes no sense to me. Either he has a terrible sound mixer who just doesn't know how to level stuff so that you can hear your characters talk while stuff is happening. I really don't know. I really don't know. But at this point, it seems like a legitimate failing on his part that he cannot mix these movies and have them be legitimately understandable. Because I cannot. And like I said, and, and as, a, as an adult man, I, I'm fortunate enough that I've protected my ears that I can hear very, very well. And I still struggle all the time. Even on my like nicely tuned home theater setup that is is keyed specifically to my room, I cannot understand a goddamn word that they say for the back half of this movie. And it just it makes no sense to me. I don't understand how a, a film can be released in 2020 with the technology that we have and it be this illegible. <laughs> it makes no sense. But here we are. Um and it's it's a consistent issue with Chris Nolan movies for me. Like I just don't understand what the characters are saying. I noticed it the most, of course, with Dark Knight Rises, but <clears throat> but then it seemed to get worse. And this movie, you're right. People do have masks on a lot. They have helmets on. There's just you can there's a marked difference. Like if somebody has to be moving around, they will have their faces obscured somehow. Yeah, so that they can dub lines over. I, I, it just it seems like a really shitty way to get around your inability to capture dialogue on set, which seems like the problem. So sorry, sidebar there, but it was it's it's one of my major beefs with this film because in the theater it was it was incomprehensible. Like you could not understand anything, uh, especially during the last action sequence in the whatever quarry they film that thing in um it's just it's 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 a real problem like no joke but anyway so the the film is building to this they they have to stop sator from burying the completed formula and so all of it comes to a head we're we're getting a parallel story with elizabeth debicki trying to extricate herself from sator trying to get away from the abusive husband and again, there's a lot of really gross stuff in there. Uh, Branagh brings the juice, I guess. He gets ready to beat her with a belt, which is like, okay. He was very intense and scary in this role. I didn't was, love his yeah. Russian accent because it's, it's an excuse for Kenneth Branagh to be the way that he is. Um, <laughs> right. And I love him for that. Sure. But the fact that he played Gilderoy Lockhart is just the most perfect thing in the world. Mm. You know, <laughs> yeah. like I can't think of a more perfect person to play that character. Um, but he chews scenery and he's he's fantastic. But yeah, he plays the gross villain really, really well. And I, I yeah. like seeing him like this. I like seeing him do things that aren't. You know, heroic or, you know, main character kind of things. <clears throat> yes, very much so. Um, so a couple of, before we get to like the, the sort of you know, final sets of sequences that attempt to sort of tie this, this crazy movie together, a couple of scenes worth noting, obviously the, the, um, art heist 
section of the film ends with a stunt that was talked about when the film was being made. Uh, basically, they crashed an actual 747 into a building and blew it up. Um, all shot for real, all done practically. I'm sure there was some CG embellishment, but you know they're legitimately dragging a 747 through a parking lot, covering, you know, blowing up cars and stuff. And and that was a cool sequence. Uh, again, it kind of goes nowhere. We find out that the piece of art that was in there was also a fake or just wasn't there at all because he had already pulled it out because he knew that that's what they were going to do because he could talk to the freaking future and they said, hey, pull the painting out. They're going to blow it up. And they were like, oh, okay. You know, whatever. So, like, they, they are trying to free Elizabeth Debicki and they fail. But they, they're moving backwards in time, right? So... Again, they, they stick him in, at the beginning of the movie, they stick him in the windmill thing for a month or something to get him out of the timeline so that they can be moving stuff around and, and positioning things. And then, you know, now they, they move back even further in time to go back and try and, you know, claim the painting or do whatever they're going to do. And we find out that, you know, the, the cool hallway fight that he had with himself was basically with himself, right? And that's why, you know, they kill him because he killed himself in the past and again it's very twisty it's cool time travel you know how ah, you fought yourself and didn't realize it kind of stuff very nice but most of the middle of this movie is the characters not being successful at doing anything right they go back to get the painting it's not there they screwed that up doesn't work uh sat they, they try to stop sator from doing this other thing doesn't work and all of it sort of comes to a head. We're introduced all of a sudden, really out of nowhere, to this incredibly large army that is apparently working for Tenet. And it regularly goes back and forth in time. And they're totally cool with it. And they haven't told anybody about it, I guess. Where where were they before? Right. Like they I mean, it's it's legitimately like this this like special forces fighting group that has like a color coding system and everything why do we need protagonist right well it's it's part of a temporal pincer attack uh. <laughs> <laughs> which we do get a little understanding of as i said they there's a long car chase sequence where they're trying to get a piece of the formula and they fail and right at the end of it they're approached by these people moving backwards in time you know satwar's people moving backwards in time and that that sort of wrecks their car and throws everything off so then the protagonist, after they find the, the weird, timey-wimey, flippy-whippy machine, he goes back in time to try and stop the other people who went back in time, or moving backwards in time, from messing up their heist. And he kind of is successful, but he also kind of isn't. And, and it's really where we get our first like taste of, of the world, the entire world moving backward from your perspective. But so that sets up this idea that becomes central to the end of the film called a temporal pincer attack, where basically you have a group of people moving linearly through time from beginning to end who are, are you know, sort of going through the timeline and they are, they're doing stuff, but basically they're collecting data, right? They're, they're telling people, here's all the stuff that happened. And then you have another group of people who has dropped in at the end of the conflict and then they work their way through it backwards, knowing what has already happened. So they can create a temporal pincer attack <laughs> to, to meet in the middle and actually accomplish 
whatever goal they were wanting to do. So you have a group moving backwards from the future, and you have a group moving straight forward through time, and then they, they sort of pass each other, do their thing, and then kind of flip places, and there's helicopters that lift them off in special things that protect them from being moved around in time or something. Because apparently all you really need is a good shipping container with a little bit of plastic in it. It's got some oxygen going, and you can just go back in time, and it's totally fine. Yeah. And, and, and that's kind of where this movie goes. It's, it's just, oh, Elizabeth Debicki does get shot with an entropic backwards bullet, which apparently is real bad for your body. And uh, she gets a really wicked scar, like right on her side, that she gets to show off later in the film. And she's very upset about it. She's very upset. She's legitimately upset about the nature of things, and she is going to have her revenge, uh, which is very satisfying. There, there's a lot of cool, like you know, boats and reverse stuff. Uh, John David Washington does a lot of pull-ups in this movie. I mean, just a tremendous number of pull-ups. He's a pull-up machine, and I'm I'm very pleased with his pull-up performance in this. I think it's it's good. Um. I, I again, man, there's so much stuff in this movie that's so cool. I mean, the reverse stuff looks amazing. I love it, but it's it's so much in the service of nothing. Yeah. That it's really hard to get excited about it. Right? I mean, it's like it's a it is a visual feast. I mean, it is Christopher Nolan like giving you all of the crazy eye candy that you could possibly want. But because it's so divorced from any emotion or just heft, like there's just relatability. To it. What's that? <laughs> relatability. I think yeah. if it were just even a little bit more relatable, like I think of his other movies, you know, Memento. We all have memories. Sure. What, what if we didn't? Inception. We all have dreams. What if we could manipulate them? This movie. What if we all had entropy bullets? <laughs> I don't, I don't really, yeah. I just, I don't know how to get in this movie and love it. I just, I don't know how. I don't know how to love this movie. Right. Um, you know, we. I don't think it wants me to. <laughs> right. A lot of people have complained for a while that Christopher Nolan's films are very cold. That they lack human emotion, right? They lack feeling. I, I disagree with that basic premise. I, I don't think that Christopher Nolan's problem is a lack of emotion. I think he actually has a lot of emotion in his films, and, and they come from an emotional place in some ways. I think his issue is that he doesn't know how to render that on screen effectively. And a lot of it has to do with the way that he sort of seemingly rigidly controls actors in performance. Mm-hmm. And, and everybody is so restrained. Everybody is so calm. I think that's why Robert Pattinson shines in this, is because he's, he's the one character that gets to sort of be expressive, to, to do more than just sort of stare off into the middle distance while the camera records their presence. And it's really yeah. only because as a character, he's the only one allowed to know things. Right. That's, that's kind of the cool thing about Neil, is that Neil, as we come to understand by the end of the film, Neil already knows all this. He knows everything that's happened. He knows every move that's being made. He is fully aware. He has been through it all and knows exactly where this is headed. 
And as a result, he's just having fun because he knows the end result of everything already. Like he, he's got it. It's down. And so as the, the temporal pincer attack comes into play and, and Nolan gives us at least, he tries to explain this at least three times in the movie, um, both with exposition, but also with, you know, like actually showing us what one of these kind of looks like. And he still struggles to kind of convey the idea. Um, it's, he even color codes it for us and he can't quite pull it off. But so Aaron Taylor Johnson just shows up in this for kind of like no reason at all for like 10 seconds playing some kind of commander that again is, is he from the future? Is he from And like the they past? gave him a is name and everything like he mm-hmm. was going to be important and then he He's wasn't in really. <laughs> two scenes, eight seconds. Like it's, it's very interesting. Maybe it was a larger part at one point. But all of this is is tied together. They're gonna they're gonna storm this destroyed Russian city where they believe that he's going to bury the formula for the future. Because once it's in this hole, nobody'll be able to get it back out again until they get to the future. And their magic hole digging technology will get them out of it. Um it's it's all very okay. And, and they try to explain the pincer attack. And so basically a red team is going to be moving through in real time. And that's where the protagonist will be. The blue team is going to be moving backwards in time. And they are going to be offering support from that perspective. And then they're going to be fighting people who are also running in different times. And it's, it's just going to be confusing as hell. Like that's really all this is going to be. It's going to look cool. It's going to be interesting. But if you expect to have any idea what's happening for the next 15 minutes, you're probably going to be disappointed. In essence, this this temporal pincer attack is designed to give them the upper hand because one group should already know everything that's supposed to happen. The coolest thing about this sequence, to me, is is really Neil's part. Because all the protagonist needs to do is secure this item. He just needs to keep it from being dropped into this hole and then having dirt exploded on top of it. Like, that's it. But Neil is the one that realizes that the plan is going to go south because he's already done this. And he... So Neil, Neil's already running in reverse, is that right? And then he unreverses himself? Yes. Or maybe it's the opposite of that. He's running. It's in, one of those. It's one of those. He's running in real time. And then there's there's one of the timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly, <clears throat> flippy-whippy time machines. And it just kind of flips him and he, and he goes backwards. While all this is happening, Elizabeth Debicki needs to kill Kenneth Branagh. And we've rolled back in time about like a month, I think. Two months? Mm-hmm. I don't even know. Something like that. They were back on a, to the boat. They were on a backwards boat. <laughs> For a couple of months don't worry about it and so at the beginning of the story again recontextualization elizabeth debicki tells us a story about seeing this powerful woman dive off of her husband's boat in the beautiful italian sun and how she was jealous of her freedom and jealous of her power and jealous you know jealous, you know, whatever well guess what it's her no <laughs> she dived off the boat and she was this different person and it's her, and that means no her life is way. Now it's incredible. It's 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 like a poem. It rhymes, and 
And so this big action sequence happens. And it's, again, for Christopher Nolan, it's shot very well. There's explosions. There's a lot of tracking shots. It's a little bit of handheld work, which he generally avoids. It's, it's, it's very nice. And it, it seems cool. There's a lot of people running uh, backwards out of things <laughs> and into things, uh, which is very cool. We have very clear time frame, right? The protagonist is wearing a watch that says 10 minutes. They have 10 minutes to do this thing. And, and it's, it's Nolan attempting desperately to try and make something that is basically incoherent have coherence. And I, I don't, I don't know if it works and I kind of don't think it does. Again, it's very fast. And if you're just looking for explosions, you're going to, you're going to be satisfied and, and that's great. But I don't, there's no emotional heft to this until no. right at the end when you realize that, when you realize who Neil is and where Neil has been throughout this entire thing. There's a lot of cool reverse explosions getting sucked back down into the little expansion points. Um, it, it, and it is kind of cool. Like the blue team comes out and they see the red team entering their helicopters. So like their mission is over and the blue team's running the other direction. It's super cool concept, man. One of those concepts where you go like, damn, that's really good. But it does not get executed well here uh, in a thematically satisfying way, I should say. Yeah. So all of this goes through and it comes to this crucial moment where the protagonist has to get through a door. Uh, he has a gun that presumably could shoot through doors, but he doesn't want to use them. And instead, he just needs to unlock the door, and he can't. And then all of a sudden, this helmeted person that you can't see appears and unlocks the door and then gets shot in front of him. And what we've come to find out is that this is Neil, that we are witnessing the moment that Neil, who we've been with through the entire film, dies. Uh, and he dies basically allowing the protagonist to complete this essential mission of stopping Sator from sending the future bomb to the future people. And it's, it's a cool moment, especially when you realize what, what's happened and who the mysterious man with the red dangly thing on his backpack is. But the first time I watched it, it happened so fast yeah. that I had no idea what was going on. And I generally consider myself but it was just a guy in a mask appeared and then got shot in the face immediately. And then the door was open and I was like, wait, what? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, it's like the movie didn't take the time to appreciate the moment. You know, it's like, I felt like that should have been a little, like we should have paused <laughs> a little right, bit. <laughs> it's, it's, it's run through very quickly, which I know is all part of the, you know, the, the urgency of the moment, but I, I guess maybe it was meant to prolong the moment so that, the moment of realization where the protagonist realizes the sacrifice that Neil's just made is, you know, maybe it was part of that. I, I don't know, but it, it's very, very quick. And the, the last scene in the movie, and, and I really hate that. Honestly, my favorite scene in the movie is, is quite legitimately the last scene in the movie because Neil had, had double reversed himself, which again, 
I, I really don't know exactly what we're supposed to do with that information. Um, but Neil had was already running in reverse. He went forward, opened the grate, got shot in the face, but then was somehow able to reverse off of that and put himself back into the regular timeline. So Neil is dead, but Neil is also still alive. And what Neil has done is sent himself back and now he's going to live out the next, you know, ever however many years knowing that he's going to wind up back at this exact moment again and be killed. Um so we we've, we've literally ended in the middle of the movie. Right? Yeah. Like the movie is over in the middle of the story. And the ending of the story is hinted at, the beginning of the story is what we watched. It's it's very clever. It's exceedingly clever. But who is but it, it is, for? But it is cinematically unsatisfying. Yeah. And that is the problem. It's, it's evidence of Christopher Nolan's intelligence. It's evidence of Christopher Nolan's commitment to running with an idea and pushing it to its absolute possible peak. But... It's a bit up itself. It's very much one of those... You were so obsessed with, with wondering if you could. You didn't think about if you should. <laughs> yeah, I, I just, I just it's, don't know. I don't know who this movie was made for, other than Christopher Nolan, which is fine. Make movies for yourself. Yeah, you're an artist. That's that's what you do. You do it for yourself first. But right. you also released it to the public, so that means I can have an opinion about it too. And I just don't. I don't get who this was for. I don't get who is supposed to enjoy this movie. The other issue that I, I really am saddened by is that what we get in that last sequence, that last scene, is the realization that the protagonist and Neil are about to embark upon this incredible friendship, like greatest story ever told friendship, and we're not going to get to see it. We saw yeah. the end of it, right? We saw where his best friend dies. And, you know... <laughs> I I can't help but think of of the that being the huge problem with uh oh shit, I can't believe I'm gonna be able to bring up George Lucas again on this episode. But with Anakin Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi, is they always talked about this cool friendship, but we just don't see it. Yeah. We, we hear we about see... Neil and protagonist, but we don't see it. Right. At all. And I, I mean John David Washington acts the hell out of the scene. It's it's his biggest scene in the film. He's summoning incredible emotions as he realizes that, you know, not only is this guy about to be his best friend for the next 20 years, but that he's just witnessed his death and knows exactly how he's going to expire within a set amount of time. And it's. It was that would be a really cool moment in the movie if we had been given time to process that. But it came yeah. at the very end. So it's like, oh, well, shit. I guess that's it then. <laughs> right. You know, they're going to go back in time together and they're going to, you know, he's going to recruit Neil 20 years ago or, or whatever. And then they're going to be buddies for 20 years. And he's going to know that Neil's going to die on that, that particular battlefield. And, you know, and then we, we, the culminating point of the film, like the final moment we're supposed to realize who the protagonist is and his role in all of this is done again in service of him rescuing or saving Elizabeth. Um, which is 
fine. I mean, it's it's good to have a character make that kind of connection and the idea of like leaving a voicemail on a random number that gets interpreted by the future and then sent back with orders to stop it or whatever. Very cool. Interesting. But why who cares? Like I, that's my <laughs> biggest thing is like who cares? Right? He's the protagonist. He's the guy that's been manipulating himself from the future the whole time. Such a cool concept, but executed here in such a way that when it's revealed, I'm just kind of like, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's neat. Yeah. That's real cool. Mm. Yeah. Oh. And it and it's just it's so disappointing given the heights that I know Christopher Nolan can attain when he tells stories. I I his skill is unquestionable, his technical proficiency unparalleled, his ability to tell a story out of narrative sequence changing its meaning and context, reversing your understanding of it from point A to point B. Absolutely awesome. He's proven it time and time and again that he can confuse us, he can keep us off balance, he can you know, enrich a story with ambiguity. But all of those things, which seem like they should be firing here, right? Like all of them feel like they should be working, don't. Like at all. It's cool film i didn't hate watching it but unlike christopher nolan's best stuff i don't really feel compelled to watch it again i tried to watch it again before we did this episode and i couldn't i was like i don't i just don't care (laughs) and that's so sad and a lot of it has to do with what you said at the very beginning who is the protagonist why should i care about him yeah he's a badass he's awesome but who is he? And I know you want to be ambiguous, right? Like we can't know everything about him. He's this mysterious figure, this mysterious force. Yes. But you got to give us something, man. And it can't just be Neil saying, oh, no, you like Diet Coke. He's like, I don't like Diet Coke. Oh, yes, you do. Okay, well, okay. See, is that and it? Is the way the movie presents that in the moment is that he's just really good at his job. So yeah, he's done his research. Right. That's again, that's another thing you wouldn't even notice that until you have to go back and watch the movie again. And it's who is gonna? I'm not gonna do that. I'm just not gonna do that. Um, I if I, I guess, have to watch your movie twice to even understand and enjoy your movie, <laughs> then you may have made a mistake. Yeah, right. It, Rewatching a movie should be an enrichment experience. It should be something that you do because you want to have a better or a deeper understanding of a film, but not just an understanding. Right. And maybe no one's been fooled into this because the prestige is like that, right? You watch it again, it's it, you know, you, you know what you know, it's a different film for you. Uh Inception definitely plays upon that, although I think Inception, even though people I think you can get a lot out of a rewatch. Inception, you don't have to rewatch to understand that movie and get what's going on. Like there, there are little things that you'll pick up on for sure, but that movie basically works one time yeah. through. If that's the only time you ever see Inception, it, Inception, it's it's enrichment. If you watch it again, you're just you're just making the experience slightly better. You're enhancing it, but you're not 
you're not changing it. You're not changing the fundamental experience of, of watching the film. But this movie is fundamentally changed by the knowledge that you receive at the end of the film in such a way that, I don't know, it just felt like, a boy, that information would have in been useful to me at the start of this. In such a way that you realize that the film you just spent two hours watching was a fucking trick. Yeah, it, like it was pointless. Like it, it, it legitimately tricked, not, it didn't just, it didn't just, you know, leave you off balance. Oh, I don't know what's going on. It was an actual planned, orchestrated, and conducted trick on your brain to make you think one thing when actually something else was happening. And, you know, M. Night Shyamalan's made a, made a pretty good career off of doing that shit. But and he also crossed a boundary because there was a moment where we were like, oh, M. Night Shyamalan, you really know how to do it. And then, yeah. and then he made just one too many, you know, one too many desserts, and everyone said no, thank you. Yeah, and, and I feel like Tenant was people saying no, thank you. <laughs> Tenant is is people saying to Christopher Nolan, "We are tired of your bullshit, Christopher Nolan. Stop it." Like that's what this movie felt like in response. It's not hated, and there are certainly people who defend it. I'll probably wind up being a defender of this film because at the end of the day. As much as I hate to say it, Christopher Nolan is one of the few people that is making original films on this budget and this scale. And I don't want him to stop. Like, I'm not mad at Christopher Nolan for making this movie. I want more of this kind of thing because nobody's doing it. If it's not a book adaptation or a young adult novel or something that's already marketable or connected to an existing group, it ain't getting made right now. Yeah, or superhero something. It's not getting made right now. Like, not at this, but like, nobody's going to hand somebody 200 million bucks to go and make an original screenplay on this budget at this scale and say, go wild. Christopher Nolan, as far as I know, is the only dude on this planet that is getting that kind of cachet. He shouldn't be. Like, this, this should be what Hollywood is trying to do. And maybe if they were doing it more, something like Tenet wouldn't feel like such a letdown. But since Christopher Nolan has established this cachet of like, hey, I'm the, you don't know what this is. There's no book for you to go read called Tenet. There's no adaptation material that you can pull up online. I, you know, rigidly control what's going in and out of my production. So you don't even have an idea of what this movie's about until I want you to know what it's about. Nobody's doing that. And then to watch this and be like, even just to say, well, that's fine, it's okay, is like, what a disappointment. What a missed opportunity. Yeah. You know, if this and movie that's... had been made at a lower budget in 1974, it would be a sort of marginally remembered, nicely, slightly forgotten little, like, fun action movie. But now it's, like, everything. What were you going to say? Well, I... I guess kind of riffing off of, you know, this being a disappointment is you would think a premise like this would be surprising and delightful. Um, someone that we both know uh, once described poetry to me as the purpose of poetry is to surprise and delight. And I kind of think that way about films sometimes is that they should surprise you and they should delight you. And this movie just doesn't do either of those things. And so I wonder what it, what is it doing? 
And it seems like you said it's just it's just trying to trick you. It's just trying to say, see what I did. I got you to watch this movie. <laughs> it's it definitely feels like the most blatant. The prestige almost gets there. Like it very nearly gets there, but it's got a bit of charm, right? It's got some it's got some some passion behind it. And not much. I mean, it's still a Christopher Nolan movie, but this feels especially flat, right? There's it's just kind of Flat, well, we even also, though there's all this bombastic stuff happening. We also don't have powerhouse performers like Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale. I mean, say what you will about Christian Bale, but he he packs a punch with his acting. Mm-hmm. And neither, I mean, Robert Pattinson, for as great as he is, he's still not able to cut loose. So, again, you don't really have the likability, the chemistry that, you know, Christian Bale and, and that Hugh Jackman had on screen, where they were just so great together even though they were mortal enemies. Um, I just didn't feel any of that. Yeah, I mean, again, all the the performances feel so restrained. John David Washington is is really good with what he's got, but he's just not given much. Most of the time, his his acting direction is just run. Run that direction as fast as you can. And then hit a thing or shoot a thing. And it's... It's fine, and it's it's cool. Like, there are shots in this that I, I would definitely, not shots, but sequences, like scenes that are, especially with the, the backward and forward time movement stuff happening, that are very cool, uh, undeniably so. But again, they're just pieces of a movie, and they're pieces that really, uh, even though I may find those scenes interesting, the rest of the stuff that surrounds them is not. Um, it's very beautiful, it's very pretty, but it does not necessarily stick in any significant way. At least, not for me. Um, I want to watch it again, I want to try and get through it again, just to, to see if, if there's anything that sort of jumps out at me. But the middle, you know, sort of 45, 50 minutes of this movie are just flat, dull. Like, nothing happens, no plot movement takes place. In a, in a film that is driven by its plot, like, this is a plot movie. It's not a character movie. That's for damn sure. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a such a plot heavy film. It is shocking to me that there are forty to fifty minutes of it that just feel aimless, like pointless. What are these characters doing? Why are they doing it? What is the end goal here, other than obtaining this future thing that, who knows what it does? It's going to wind up being some weird spike that Aaron Johnson has on his shoulder that he breaks into chunks and throws to everybody at the end. It's like, what is this? How is that a formula? What are you talking about? <laughs> um, Again, Quantum Break was great. <laughs> mm. And you should, if you don't play video games, you should watch a Let's Play of it. At least do yourself that favor. Um. Because I think it's a wonderful companion piece to this movie, just in terms of of what characters would have done for this. <laughs> just like compelling characters with interesting backgrounds and stories would have made all the difference. And if you want a really fascinating time travel film, then go watch Primer. Yeah. By Shane Carruth. Yeah, if you really um, want your idea of what a time travel movie is challenged, that's it. Yes, because this movie's trying to do Primer desperately. It wants to be Primer. I know Christopher Nolan has seen Primer, and it wants to do that desperately. 
and it's just can't. And maybe that's because Christopher Nolan is serving two masters here. He's obviously still there. There is a chunk of Christopher Nolan that is still that like art school film director. He just wants to experiment and play. And well, what happens if you run a film backwards next to a you know split diopter shot of film running forwards? Right. He's, he's like he's that guy, and and you can feel that tendency. But yet he is also now bound to this hit machine, right? That his original films have to be these you know, 600 $700 billion blockbusters that everybody loves. When in reality, that is so rare to hit and so rare to consistently come into. And the fact that he has in the past is remarkable in and of itself. But this feels like a movie that would have done better at a smaller scale more time, more character work to sort of center this story and give it some heft. Because right now it's just a concept that's kind of floating in the ether that is cool enough but doesn't really go anywhere. And then by the end of it, when you realize that everything that you just watched was like absolute bullshit, it makes it like a, a legit slap in the face where you're, you're just like, wait, what? So all of that that I watched was just the future version of this dude manipulating himself to get to this point and then watch his best friend die? Awesome. Thanks, Christopher Nolan. Yeah. An emotionally resonant yeah. moment. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it was emotionally resonant. Like, I love Neil, and knowing that that's his end was really terrible. I liked the whole, like, backpack with the red string thing, so you know that he's the guy that's been, like, around for the whole movie, saving his butt. That's great. It's really good stuff. But if we're talking about screenwriting setup and payoff, this movie fails at the payoff again and again and again. So lots of setup, lots of really good setup. But then the payoffs come so fast and furious and they're so generally unsatisfying that they don't do anything to help me understand this world better or care about it. And that's the unfortunate thing. Um, and ultimately where I think Tenet fails. But so, any final thoughts? Any other issues with Tenet that you want to bring up? Any uh, particular little things that stuck out to you? Um, I, I think I've I think I've hit on everything that bothered me about it. And you know, to return to an earlier idea, it's easy to nitpick something that is made really well sometimes because we're sitting and looking for flaws and every flaw is magnified because everything else is really well done. So this movie's missteps seem so huge because the movie is otherwise quite good. It's not, I mean, and that's, that's Christopher Nolan in a nutshell. You, you can forgive mistakes because usually it's wrapped up in a film that is really good. So I don't hate this movie. I enjoyed watching no. this movie. But it is definitely not on par with what I expected from him. I mean, I, I, I guess I went into this with very high hopes. Yes, same. Because it was so mysterious. Like, they, they once again played up that, that Christopher Nolan mystery. Like, what is this movie? Um, I think Ben Kachera from Polygon, uh, I was reading his review again, and he he mentions sort of like how Nolan keeps pushing the 
the boundaries of of a blockbuster like this, right? That you know this this isn't a you know again I'll pick on Michael Bay, but this isn't like a Michael Bay action film where it's just explosions. It it is that, but then it does try to have this kind of like interesting core at its at its at its way down deep. It tries to have something else there. I don't think Tenet gets there. But Kuchera's point was basically that when you've got somebody doing this kind of thing, and it's really the only guy doing this kind of thing, they're not going to succeed every time. And they're going to fail because they, they overreach or they tried something and it didn't work. You know, like no one's human. He's not just a hit-making film machine, right? Like, and that's fine. But is that enough to give the film a pass as it stands? Like, hey, he tried. I don't know. I mean, like, this is two and a half hours of your life. You have to decide for yourself whether or not you're willing to invest that in a film where people go like, yeah, but he tried. <laughs> you know, like, if you have a tolerance for that, then by all means. Like, Tenet's got a lot for you to love. And, and again, we're, we're shit-talking the film a little bit here because it's, it's certainly lesser Nolan. I don't think anybody's going to fight us on that statement. It's not Nolan operating at his peak. But there is still a lot of cool stuff here. And there might be something that you just grab onto. Again, the action is top-notch. John David Washington is 100% on board. He is swinging for the fences every moment that he gets. That hallway reverse and forward fight scene is splendid, even though it means nothing in the film. Um, there are certainly just moments that work and work well. But the problem with Tenet, and maybe the problem with Nolan since The Dark Knight Rises, is that the moments aren't hanging together well like they used to. At least not for me, right? Not like Inception, definitely not like The Prestige. Again, I'll go ahead and say I think The Prestige is his best film. Like, it's it's the one I enjoy the most uh, on rewatching. It's, it's I think incredibly it's, strong. I think it's the one that I probably watch the most just when I'm sick and I'm in bed and I want something comforting, I'll watch like The Prestige. My favorite though is still Memento. That that movie yeah. took my face and just just crushed it. I was so blown away by that movie. <laughs> yeah, it's it's truly great. Um, so I mean, I, I, we're picking on it. Lots of people have picked on it. You know, we are certainly not alone in our issues with Tenet. Whenever a film of this scale is released and there's this much expectation heaped upon it, you're going to have a lot of people who are both upset and a lot of people who are, are really thrilled um I, I just find it telling that even in most of the positive reviews that i read they admit that it's messy and kind of broken and that the characters kind of suck but it's blockbuster filmmaking like most people have never seen and it certainly is that like i said it, one measure in, on our podcast of like is if it, if a film has merit is if it shows you things you've never seen before and Tenet is a whole bundle of that. Like there's stuff in this that you've never seen and, and you'll probably never see again, to be honest. But it's <laughs> judging by how people responded, probably not. <laughs> but it's it's not engaging in the traditional sense. Um, there's not a lot here to emotionally latch on to if that's important to you. It's just going to be a smattering of interesting visuals and a story that may or may not hang together for you. 
not because it's confusing. The story of Tenet is not confusing. He gives you all the pieces. Everything is there. The only thing confusing about it is that characters are moving backwards sometimes and the concept of the temporal pincer attack. <laughs> um, like That's really the only thing, man. But the skill on display is undeniable. And I want more original swings at stuff like this. Like that's the pro the problem is not that Tenet is just an okay movie. The problem is that we get so few of these movies that Tenet being okay is a legitimate danger to the to studios making any original films at a decent scale. Like that's what we're getting to. Because if Tenet doesn't succeed, Chris Nolan's the only guy that's getting these projects funded at this point. Like nobody is paying for this stuff unless there's a you know, is Godzilla in it? Well, I don't know. Can Godzilla be in it? Yes. Then put Godzilla in it. Like yeah. that's that's where we're at with studio filmmaking right now. If your budget's under you know forty million, yeah, they don't give a crap, right? Do whatever you want. But nobody's getting one hundred and fifty to one hundred and eighty million dollars to go make a blockbuster action film based on an original concept anymore. Yeah, it just doesn't. Happen. It's not. It's not a safe bet. And right. If anything, Tenet kind of proves why it's not a safe bet. I mean, as much as I enjoy the originality of the film, the problems sort of illustrate what studios studios are talking about, what they worry about. Is that, are people going to get this? Unfortunately, that's exactly right. You know, is this going to play in Poughkeepsie, right? And, yeah. and Tenet obviously didn't. Like, not at all. So... Does that mean that Chris Nolan's done? No. I mean, studios, he's made enough money that he gets a pass on a couple of these, right? Nobody's going to fight him on that. And by the end of, you know, they made enough money that by the time it's all over, it'll probably be okay. But does he get to do this two more times? Three? Unless there's another big Inception-style surprise summer smash? I really don't know. Um... I think what this what this shows in terms of Christopher Nolan's career is he needs a co-writer. He needs somebody to check his instincts and offer alternative solutions to problems. Um, because a bunch of characters who are really upset about falsified art, probably not the best thing to hang your action movie premise on. Here we are. Um, but the, un the the technique on display is undeniable. And, and that's what Christopher Nolan brings to the table. So hopefully he can get another project off the ground. Maybe he's worked through all of the projects he's wanted to complete since college. And now we can get to either some original scripts um, or maybe just some projects, some adaptations, you know, some stuff the studios had in development that they think Nolan would be good for. I don't want to see him go full Fincher. Right, where Fincher's just making garbage now. Like he he seems gleeful about just taking garbage stories and turning them into relatively successful garbage movies. Because for him it's um, just I wanna make the movie. I don't really care about anything else. Yeah, Fincher has no artistic stake in any of these things. Like I I kind of both hate and love that about him. Whereas Nolan, he obviously cares about these. Like Yeah. This these are personal stories to him. I, they don't feel like it. I mean, there's nothing on screen that would indicate that. But it's obvious that this is 
I guess we could call it a passion project, something he's been trying to develop for years and finally got the chance. So, I mean, awesome. Go for it, Christopher Nolan. But I, I don't know if that's what he needs to do next. And, and maybe we'll, we'll see. Um, I want more Chris Nolan movies at this scale, but they need to engage me more than Tenet did. Agreed. Well, all right. Well, let's let's wrap it up then. Uh, so, do we have one thing about Tenant? Is there is there one thing that we think could improve Tenant uh, as a film? I actually thought of one thing that would be simple. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. Make it shorter. You'd be surprised yeah. how much <laughs> people are willing to forgive and overlook if your movie is just not so fucking long, like. <laughs> I I can't I can't stress enough like people like those Transformers movies because they're pretty quick paced like they they just deliver everything all at once and they get it done with and then you're out of the theater and you're hopefully at Applebee's right <laughs> right but maybe Chili's tenets yeah ch- Chili's if you're a classy kind of person right. maybe I'm that classy um but this movie doesn't doesn't do that. And and I feel like if we had lost twenty minutes off of this, just just give me twenty minutes, that would have been a little. Honestly, bit Honestly, the art the art heist in the middle could have been basically yeah. cut from the film. Exactly. Like they wanted to crash a seven forty seven into a building. That's what they wanted to do. We and they all created did. a scenario where they could, and that's fine. But it the, means nothing. The characters legitimately leave, and nothing has changed. Yeah. So it just what, what was the point? And and I. I find myself looking whenever a movie is underwhelming, I always go back and think, is it just that there were too many dull sections? And I find that a lot of movies, because we're pushing this three hour mark now, so many movies just tend to have these middle acts that are really muddy and boring and long. And I don't like it. So I think that would help. Uh, undoubtedly, undoubtedly, um, getting this movie under two hours, I think would have changed a lot of the, the, the pacing, the, the sort of middle act structure of it, you know, struggling to keep up. Um, my biggest thought with this one and what was probably the most surprising thing is that I think that this film just fails consistently at delivering its exposition. It's a very exposition-heavy film. Like Characters are explaining shit all the time. But yet, unlike something like Inception, and even The Prestige, which had a fair amount of exposition as they were talking about magic, and they set stuff up, blah, blah, blah. This film just doesn't have that Christopher Nolan exposition sauce that he's usually extremely good at. Because this very, like, like you know, still photographer style is great for delivering exposition because you, you present these moments characters deliver their information you move on right they're they're very straightforward to shoot very straightforward to to explain and he just doesn't have them here i mean we we actually have a scene at the end of this movie where aaron taylor johnson is standing in front of like a digital whiteboard and circling shit and saying okay we're going to start over here circle and then we're going to go over here arrow right like like he's explaining it and still, it's like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Why does this matter? And 
you know, it's 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 like the the Death Star attack scene in Star Wars without any kind of movement or interest. It just it it doesn't it doesn't work. Um, and so a lot of it comes down to just the film explaining itself better, like what is happening and what is going on and why. <laughs> I I think the protagonist being behind the whole thing that reveal about the protagonist and Neil should have come almost at the midway mark in the film. That should have been revealed. Uh, at you least, are the guy. At least before the final heist at the end. Yeah. So that he could I mean, have like done even that after with... that. Yeah, like so crazy. If he had known maybe going into this final confrontation, this final pincer attack. <laughs> maybe if he had known that Temporal he was oh, Maybe if he had known who he was, it would have had some weight to it because it would have been like, ah, I'm owning my identity as the tenant guy. But he wasn't really. Yeah. I mean, again, because it, it changes because the protagonist, all of his agency is his future self dictating back. You remove present protagonist, the protagonist that we know from having any sort of input into what's happening because what he's done is already faded. It's a faded choice. We know. And if and if he was going to go the wrong direction, that's why Neil is there to put him back on track. And that just feels like such a, a it just feels like such a betrayal at the end of the film yeah. that our character that we've been following has had basically no choice in the matter. He's just doing what he's supposed to have done from the very beginning. You know, again, I go back to you know we can go back to Back in the Future. It's like. Marty knowing from the start everything that's going to happen because future Marty already told him or something, right? It's just, it, it drains the tension away. Like you felt the tension while it was happening, but then you realize, Oh, all of that tension was fake yeah, because everything was already determined. And, you know, I mean, we could guess, I guess we get a large discussion about predeterminism, free will, all this different stuff, whatever, but it, it, it's, it's a not time travel movie, movie. Make it spicy. Right. Spicy time travel. So, I mean, we could probably talk about more one things, but in any case. So, what's our, our failure piece rating here? Because this is not necessarily a failure in the grand scheme of cinema. It is certainly, for Christopher Nolan, and at this point, a storied career in, in film, this is a bit of a misstep, right? It's a bit of a failure for him. So, the question is, is where will this film live in his, his you know, oeuvre moving forward? Um, so where would you put it on your failure piece rating? Well, and it's sort of complicated because we're talking about him yes. against him. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm rating him against himself. So. Right. Cause it's the only way you can rate a Nolan five Nolans out of six. Yeah. yeah like I'm giving this my lowest rating right. seven thumbs up. Um, yeah. cause at the end of the day, absolutely see this movie because no one else is doing this. You should see it. Yeah. Uh, this is film history being made. You know, we're going to teach classes in the future all about Christopher Nolan and the movies that he made. I know that. Um, Seemingly so. Yeah. So I'm thinking of this in terms of the rest of his catalog, where this movie sits. And it's like an 85. Because it's like, it's good. Like it's real good. Mm -hmm. But it's not great. It's not like, oh, it's not Memento, it's not Inception, it's not The Prestige. It doesn't have that sort of 
weight and memory in in the history of film and I think in his career that those movies do. Yeah, I, I'm pretty much in the same range. This was an, an 80 for me, um, whereas a lot of other, if we're just looking at Chris Nolan's, like, you know, other bat, not Batman projects, you know, Inception's like a 90 for me pretty easily. Yeah. Interstellar is... See, I put that one way lower than this. Yeah, like, they feel a bit the same to me uh, in terms of overall re- response, reaction, Um you know, so I'm, they're right around the same. But but yes, this is looking at the career of, of, again, who may possibly go down as one of the greatest filmmakers of this generation without much fight. Um, this feels like a, a bit of a bump in the road, right? A, a cool bump, an interesting bump, but not necessarily something that is going to be, you know, in that future class where... Christopher Nolan is is being studied heavily. This feels like the one that might get left off the syllabus. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're just not going to. We'll show a couple scenes. His right? dark We'll, we'll show that cool hallway scene. <laughs> but we're not going to show the whole. We're not going to take the time to watch the whole movie. Like, you know, it's, it's that kind of like. And every director will have that. I don't think there's a single yeah. director that has a flawless no. catalog. I mean, um, War of the Worlds. Ah. Uh, Come on, Senor Spielberg! Oh, how good! Come you? on, man! You know, like everybody's got them. Every every great director has a project. It's which is what I think might have hurt Chris. I mean, I don't know Christopher Nolan. I have no idea what the man might think or feel. But this almost feels like the one that Christopher Nolan was legitimately hurt that people didn't like. Well, like I think he really thought that this would be something that people would if, love. If it, was, if it was a story that he had been working on for a long time, that always hurts. I don't care what anybody yeah. says. It hurts when people don't like the thing that you made. So, yeah, maybe this will bring him back to just, I should make movies that people want to see, in addition to movies that I want to make. And just to drop the obsession with, using the language of film to confuse us. Yeah. Right. Use to, it to... to exploit how movies typically work so that we are completely thrown off by what we're seeing. It can be a great effect and he's proven that it can be a fantastic effect when he does it. But now it just feels like it's, it's the M night Shyamalan. It's yeah. one too many twists, yeah. right? Like man, just make a regular ass movie, please. Right, just 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 try it. Just give it a shot. You'll love it, I promise. You know. Yeah, like I know it's boring to just film scenes in order and put them in order next to each other so that we understand them and follow them from point A to point B. I know that that's boring and it's really simple for someone as talented as you, but Jesus, dude, come on. <laughs> like yeah. you don't have to make it this complicated. You don't have to fight your own. Um, you know, I, I appreciate the mechanical nature of the time travel and how it is is very, you know, hey, if you want to go back in time, you're going to have to sit in a boat for 30 days because, you know, you can't just teleport there. Like, I love all that stuff. Again, watch Primer. Shane Carruth's Primer is, is a wonderful exploration of the, the nature of how you might physically transport through time. Spoiler, it's like algae. Um <laughs> Like it's it's really good, but 
this movie just feels like it's shot for a star and it really, really fell short. Yeah. It's not of, like it was of, time of being a satisfying movie. <laughs> no, it's not time cop. <laughs> um, but man, I could have enjoyed an exploding time paradox, man. That might have been fun. There is never enough time to satisfy a woman. <laughs> ah, time cop. I could have used a little more oh. time cop in this, if I'm being honest. Yeah, I mean, if anything, relying a little bit more on the, the tropes, the expected tropes of a time travel movie to help your audience sort of follow along, not a bad choice. But Nolan is not interested in that, obviously. He's going to go his own way, and nobody's going to stop him, and that's just the way it's going to be. All right, well, let's let's go ahead and wrap up. Um, I think we've had a, a good discussion of Tenet and, and trying to delve into its many layers. It is a fascinating time travel film from a director at the top of his game that is probably a half hour too long and way more complicated than it needs to be. Indeed. Um, but it's pretty cool. Like I said, it's, there's nothing else like it out there, so if you just want to see something interesting, Tenet will definitely give you something interesting. Uh, Kenneth Branagh in a Russian accent trying <laughs> to beat a woman with a belt. Wow. If that's your, if that's your thing, it's wow. right here. Reach out. Take it. <laughs> It's yours. Um, not necessarily my thing, yeah. but obviously Christopher Nolan has some kind of thing for it. Um, and what about the kid? Did the kid ever even speak? Nope. Just an afterthought. <laughs> he, he just stood outside his school and waited for his mom to kiss him before he got whisked away in an SUV. Um, anyway, it doesn't It's like those Inception kids. They don't even have faces. That's right. They don't matter. They'll just talk on the phone occasionally. Worry about it. But, uh, so, dear listener, thanks for hanging out with us and listening to our discussion of Tenet. Uh, where can you be found on social media, Cap? I can be found on Twitter at Baskinator. And I can be found on Twitter, just myself, at T Baskin. You can find us at FPeace Theater on Twitter or at uh, FailurePeace at gmail.com. Um, love to hear from you if you have any questions or concerns. Uh, we will be back next week. Uh, we might continue talking about some 2020 films that slipped under the radar. I've got a few other ones that we might sort of address. Um, but, of course, we have a slate of classic films that are definitely worth your time as well. Uh, because if it's not a masterpiece, it could be a failure piece. And then, of course, it could be a piece of something else. So, thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye, bye. <laughs>